Not like she has a social security card. You know? No, exactly. She's like, I was made in a lab in Nebraska. Like, what do you, I'm not in the system. They're going to start asking me to pay taxes. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest, Steve Fox, friend of the pod, for a little bonus episode. Regular content is resuming soon. The month of August is when con season really kicks into high gear, July and August. This whole period has been crazy, so thank you for bearing with Regular episodes of Cerebro are coming soon. Up next is Patrick Sullivan on Trish Tilby. But I do like doing this kind of episode, and the response to the episode I did with Jerry has been really positive. So I was excited to have Steve on to talk about Dark X-Men number one, which just released a few days ago as we're having this conversation. Steve, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Uh, hopefully I have I have less uh, controversy to address than Jerry did from the gala. <laughs> I would hope so. I would think so. I mean, part of, but the weirdest thing, the weirdest thing about doing that was that it was a week before the issue came out because we wanted to drop it like at the release day. Right. You know, I've done the NDA dance with Marvel, so I got an advanced copy. I didn't know what any of the reactions were going to be. And I had to guess because I'm like, so Jerry, what do you say in response if someone <laughs> feels this way? You know, so it was just, it was, it was tricky. And I had to kind of stick to my personal reactions. But thanks to everybody who reached out with kind words about that. This is a tough story. And I understand that, uh, I mean, it's a tough story for me to read as a fan. So I, I empathize. I keep making the very corny joke that it, it's not called Great Times of X. It's no. not called Fun Relaxing Beach Vacation of X. Well, what I said to somebody, so <laughs> Jordan Block and I have this joke where when Jerry Duggan really goes crazy on a plot point, we call him Gerard because that's his full <laughs> name. So they were just like, oh, Uncle Jerry is not home today. Gerard came to work today. Like Gerard <laughs> is crazy for this. So it's just like a thing we do. But so... I uh, I texted Jordan because we were talking about the gala issue. Oh, I said gala correctly. Did you hear that? Gala is correct. It's just very <laughs> yeah. New York. And it's embarrassing when I listen to myself say gala 500 times and Jerry says gala 500 times. And I'm like, why <laughs> did that not click to me that I was saying it different? But anyway, we were talking and I said, we should have known that we were going to Days of Future Past at some point the minute Kitty Pride started calling herself Kate. She pointed at the WrestleMania sign. Like it was not <laughs> subtle. Steve's laughing. It's not subtle when Jerry Duggan has Kitty Pride go, I'm Kate now. Because historically, when Kitty becomes Kate now, Days of Future Past happens. That's sort of the whole. But we were having such a great time that I was just like, well, <laughs> you know, surely not till Act Three, which for all we know could be in like 2024. And you know what? Here we are. Uh, I was close. <laughs> so what I'd like to do a little bit before we dive into the issue is just talk a little bit about how your career and life have changed with regard to the X-Men since we recorded the North Star episode back in 2021. 
Oh, wow. Has it been yeah. that long? Mm-hmm. It was the first Cerebro Pride Month, which I only did twice because I ran out of gay characters who mattered. No, I'm kidding. There are still <laughs> there are still more. There is still more to cover. But no, I, it's actually, I ran out of... Uh, I ran out of the ability to release this show literally every week because of COVID. Once sure. the world was open again, it became harder. And, and the episodes progressively got longer and longer. It became harder to stick to that schedule. So if, you know, there was no way to guarantee, I'm scheduling so far ahead that it was like, I can't schedule four episodes for Pride Month when they might not hit until July or one might hit in G like it just didn't make sense anymore so i don't do themed months anymore <laughs> um or uh, or holidays if i can avoid it sometimes there's like one where i can just squeak it in and that's fun <laughs> but anyway when we did that i believe x-men 92 was happening and you might have written some of it already but it hadn't been announced yet Yes, if I remember correctly, I had done Spider Ham, so that yes, it was we were talking about known. Spider Ham. It was known yeah. that you had done Marvel work, but even that's through Scholastic, so it's right. Kind it's of a like, licensed you know, thing. It's, it's, it's a, a little license. different from like being at the right the big kids table. And I already had X Men ninety two in progress, and I can't remember if anything had been written or if. I had just done the outline and like started development work on it. I think just the pitch had been approved because it was months later that you did the Zaladane joke. That's possible. We did work quite a ways in advance on that book, though. So, well, because it didn't have to be in continuity with everything else. So, yes. Oh, actually, it was easier to fit up, it in anywhere. I was pretty much done writing by the time Inferno came out. Yeah, so, so that was quite a while before because yeah. we. Inferno's quite a few months later. Listen, much like much like timelines in comics, uh, time in the real world. Some no time had sense. passed. Point yes. is, for people who are listening who are not regular readers of the current comics, you should know that Steve Fox has become a mainstay of the X Office in the time since. He, oh, you're making such a face. You have, it's true. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I just love to kind of like disassociate and not think about, <laughs> like, but I obviously I'm very grateful and very humbled. And it is, I do think I, I have kind of a unique journey in that I had worked in comics journalism. And one of the last things I wrote about was the announcement that Jonathan Hickman was going to be doing an X-Men series. This was before Teeny and Ben and everyone else even got announced. This was just House of X and Powers of Ten. And I had written that. And then I bounced from comics journalism. And now several years later, I'm writing a book for Fall of X. And I'm writing more than one project that has not been announced that involves mutants. So you heard it here first. I'm very grateful uh, for Jordan White throwing things my way. Love Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I've had a great time. I'm very grateful, and and I I do think I'm probably I'm probably the only person in the X office who who has had that journey, um, specifically to from fan journalism to writing the books. <laughs> I think Teeny did some comics journalism. She had a similar self manifestation where one of her biggest articles for us was about the fact that female and non male identifying creators never got hired to work on men. On male characters. Yeah, it was very normal for male writers to get hired. I mean, hello, I'm writing Spider-Woman. Right. And this book has a female lead, too. It's not, yes. you know, and you wrote the Firestar Annual. Like, right. It's not seen as abnormal for men to write women. But if a woman no really writes, at it. it's like Annie Nascenti's Daredevil is really the big example 
at Marvel, probably. You have, it's rarer. Yeah. And you could also, I mean, Wheezy mostly did team books, but she was working with a lot of prominent male characters. She was. And Superman over at DC was her bread and butter for 10 years. Death of Superman is Wheezy. So yeah, that's one of those. But then there's a, a long fallow period where you don't really see that for like 20 mm-hmm. years afterward, which is Yeah, really it's like Devin Grayson's Nightwing and Gail Simone on Deadpool. And I think that's like it off the top of my head, which is a shame. Yeah. And Teeny had written about that. And then soon after she got asked to do a Captain America project and, you know, and then she got Thanos. Other fun things. Yeah. You got to manifest. <laughs> you do. You do. You do. Well, she tells me that issue two of this is great. I have not had a chance to read it yet. And so I was like, oh my God, don't say that when I can't read it yet. (laughs) But I was glad to hear it. I really loved this first issue. For the listeners, again, just to sort of catch you up. In the time since the North Star episode, Steve first did the Secret X-Men Year 2 story on Marvel Unlimited. Well, wait. After X-Men 92. 92. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was thinking in the 616 continuity. So there was the X-Men 92 miniseries House of 92, which you should absolutely pick up if you haven't. It's hilarious. (laughs) Just really delightful. It sets all of the Krakoa stories that had happened up to that point. So actually Hickman whole era from House of X, Powers of Ten up through Inferno 21. Calling it Inferno 21 to distinguish it from Inferno because we're going to be referencing Inferno from 1988 a lot in this episode. (laughs) Inferno 21 is the one that Hickman wrote. So it retells all of those stories in the world of the 90s cartoons. So like not too bloody child appropriate mostly (laughs) but with a wink because everyone who actually was a child watching that in the 90s is now old like us so uh (laughs) ouch accurate yeah well like in gay years we're old in gay years not in regular years it's like dog years that way it's a really you turn 28 and you're like ooh, i'm the old guy at the club suddenly (laughs) don't love that So first there was X-Men 92. Then you did the secret X-Men, the losers of the vote, year two story that was sort of pegged around Monet, which was fun because I know that you're a big Monet head like me. So what fun for your first like 616 project to be a Monet story. That's a rare treat. And I made sure that the the first character I wrote in it was Monet. Like she she was like the first line. I was like the first Marvel. The character. first Marvel character I ever wrote in the main continuity was Monet Sancroix. I love that for you. Yep. I really do. And then you did the X-Men annual about Firestar. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, as I knew I would, and I like shook my fist at Jerry when she won the vote, because I was like, you're going to do it. I was like, I know they're going to make me love Firestar. (laughs) The gala finally clicked it into place for me. Like, I really am now invested. But what primed the pump, so to speak, was your annual, in part because... I identify with Roulette to some extent. Like, that's a character I really have always dug. You know, she's kind of trashy new money. She knows what she wants. She's hot, but she'll never be Firestar. You know, like, there's (laughs) something about her that I find really appealing. So having her and Cat's Eye, my beloved, and Jetstream (laughs) and all the other girlies, Taro, my queen, you know, kind of go, hey, why does Firestar get to be an X-Man? Like, she ran away from being a mutant and we all got murdered instead. Like, so, hmm, I don't know how we feel about that. And then for Angelica to not only have a really great little adventure, but also by the end of it, get where they were coming from and sort of acknowledge it 
okay, Jenny, let's get a drink, you dumb bitch. Like, let's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of the vibe. And Jenny being like, all right, I still kind of hate you, but it's it's working. Keep this up, you know? And I think that would be a fun dynamic to revisit between the two of them at some point. I really loved that issue. It helped prepare me for the inevitable love for Firestar that I knew would come. <laughs> and now that she's in her deep cover, they've got to believe it's real, you know, <laughs> mission as Orcus's double agent spy who's really our spy. I'm just like over the moon for that story. What came right after that? After that, I, I bopped it into, well, I did She-Hulk in Infinity very briefly. And then I, I bopped into, um, the spider office to do web weaver and that's when you created web weaver right yeah. who is a fun new character who people like i mean like obviously i'm sure there are psychos who hate him because he's gay <laughs> but like you get what i mean like yeah the fan response overall from non-psychos i think has been pretty positive also to be honest the, you know knock on wood but this the psychos lose interest so fast like yeah, they've moved on to the newest gay character to be mad about yeah or black character well or character, anything whatever. that's like yeah. too just whatever terrible, for them right yeah. yeah no exactly but to be honest it was like a really awful month with people like DMing me like I'm gonna find and kill you and yeah like, no I mean I remember I we were talking yeah. about it at the time as it was happening and I was really kind of not actually concerned but like just concerned about the mental toll of that it was more yeah I was never like literally afraid someone was going to find and kill me but it's very demoralizing the idea that someone thinks about it to the point where they send a complete stranger a message like that is distressing whether or not they plan on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And for a, let's restate, a 15-page alternate reality. Alternate, not even, he doesn't even exist in our universe. Right. And he's not Peter Parker. No. It's not even like I made a gay version of Peter Parker. It's an original character. So it was uh, quite demoralizing for a moment. But then by the time the, the and I, that first short was with Kei Zama, and by the time that I did the short with Luciano Vecchio in um, Spider-Verse, Voices Spider-Verse. Marvel's uh, Voices Beyond the Spider-Verse Spider or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. By the time I did that, there was like no backlash. And I mean, that's where we had a venomized drag queen and there still was not really backlash. So it was like, okay, you guys have- Okay, you've lost interest, can. thank God, right? Yeah. Right. So it's like, okay, just, you know, you got it out of your system, you horrible people, and now we can move on. <laughs> yeah, and then Catherine Locke just wrote a Web Weaver story for this year's Marvel's Voices Pride. So yes. that's gotta be fun to see the character getting used by other writers. That's fun. That's a feeling yeah, that's gotta originally... be. I mean, at the one on the one hand, you're like, oh my god, my baby like is out in the world, like <laughs> at college now, right? But at the other hand, it's nice to create something that other people then want to play with. That's fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I had reached out to Sarah Brunstad, the editor of Pride, um, to say like, hey, you know, I would love to do something for this. Is Webweaver getting used? And Sarah was like, you know, actually he is. But I wanted you to do something with Carmen because of Dark X Men coming up. So. It worked out really nicely. Uh, and it is cool to see Webweaver go out and do other things. It was cool to see Dan Slott and Mark Bagley have him in Spider-Man. Right. Like, That's oh, wild. Character yeah. I helped create is being drawn by Mark Bagley and written by Dan Slott. That's crazy. Yeah, that's wild. As Spider-Man things go. Like, that's pretty yeah. A-list. And, and <laughs> to have Lino Francis Yu draw the cover to Voices and draw him on that. It's been mm -hmm. really wild. Um and I, I can say I, I've done one other Web Weaver thing that will be coming up, but not necessarily where people expect. So I'm excited for that. Interesting. I enjoyed all that stuff. And it all seems to have led back to X for Dark X-Men. How did this book come into being? 
Well, I'm very grateful for the way Jordan has looked out for me as a writer. He reached out to me about X-Men 92 because he had read Spider-Ham and he was like, okay, you can do funny stuff that's tied to continuity. And like a little all ages. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, he had offered me the unlimited you you talked about because he knew I wanted to do stuff in continuity. He knew I wanted to work with, you know, quote, the real X-Men. And he was like, okay, well, why don't you try to make it like a little less funny? Although that short was still pretty humorous. There's a little farce in it. Yeah. Well, like Teenie's first one. I mean, Secret X-Men is kind of a a jokey concept. It's like, well, you didn't vote for these characters, but we picked them because we like them. So here's a story, you know? And also when we pick them, because I got to be involved in the draft for the third election, we're not really thinking ahead to like, okay, how will they all work together as a loser? A team, (laughs) right, yeah. We're we're picking good characters that aren't being used anywhere else. Well, it's also characters who would slot nicely into the X-Men team that is planned, right? To be honest, not even the hugest consideration. I mean, Jerry's a really good sport to just kind of have to be like- He rolls with it. I'll take it if I have to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. At least for the third year, there was no Jerry being like, oh, no, I can't use that character. Like, he was down for it if no one else had a plan for someone. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so Jordan asked me to do the one with Monet and, and Siren and, and Micromax and Gorgon and all these <laughs> very odd characters. All the warriors. Yeah, Bling, yeah. Gentle. It was a cool year. I mean, every year I I think that a lot of the characters chosen have been characters it would be nice to see more of. And so it was nice Absolutely. to see that. And it has helped. I mean, you you see Tempo. Yeah, it raises their public profile enormously. Tempo. Complete long shot the first year. And now, you know, she's had multiple. And now if she was just on the roster one of these years, it wouldn't feel strange at all. No, I don't think anyone would blink an eye. And Monet, I think, benefited from it because she hadn't Mm -hmm. landed anywhere else. I had told Teeny, you know, Teeny is like my comics big sister. Yeah. And she wrote the first Secret X-Men and she came up with such a good justification, which is that those were the nine who wanted it the most. And that made sense for that lineup. But I had a much more bizarre lineup. <laughs> and I, I could not justify it the same way. So we ended up with kind of like a funny caper um, taking place off, you know, basically off panel of the gala. But after that, Jordan uh, asked me about the annual and he's like, you know, do this one straight. Like, this is not funny. This is a superhero comic. Like, do yeah. the damn thing. Yeah. Firestar was not a mandate. What what we did is we sat down and and it, it did have to happen very quickly because we realized they realized they needed the annual because Jerry was going to be too busy with Dark Web to write an X-Men issue in December. So then they're like, OK, let's do an annual. Let's ask Steve. Okay, so what's your idea now? (laughs) You have two days. What's your idea? Tell us now. We've got to get cooking. I was on the phone in the airport talking to Jordan as I'm like rolling with my bags. (laughs) But we looked at who was getting featured before and after December because we're going to be coming off of the Forge arc with the Children of the Vault. Havoc was a big fixture in Dark Web. Uh, sync was was had big stuff coming up so firestar was the one who kind of stood out as not having a big moment she needed a bridge from the vote to fall of x yes so i was really proud of how that story came out with andrea devito and sebastian chang i love that issue it was great i was so proud of you thank you i really was i was like look at him doing the real big stage thing thing. (laughs) it says x-men on it like you know that's crazy and I, I approach each new thing as this might be the only thing I get to do. So it's like, well, I'm going to leave it all on the table here. 
Um, but I was really proud of the story we, we ended up carving out where, you know, like you said earlier, we get to address what's going on with Firestar without acting like we solve it. But it, it, I feel like it was kind of a tension breaker for some people of like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. Like, maybe she's a little unfairly hated. Maybe it's a little fair, but we can move on from here. And also, like, for X-Men fans, I do think, I mean, outside of the very brief stint in Amazing X-Men, she's never really been an X-Men character. That's why there was hate for her. Like, that's why I was frustrated. Right. I was like, I wanted to see Monet win, or at the very least, another X-Men character who should get the promotion. But here's the thing. It worked really, really well. Yeah. It's worked really, really, really well. You still need for X-Men fans who are notorious among comics fans, it's kind of like Batman people for like just reading the one <laughs> thing, right? And that's not to say this is universal. I read outside of X, plenty of Batman fans read outside of Gotham. I'm just saying, I think those are the two where it's like, because they, they're their own really ornate worlds that you can yes. just get lost in that one world forever. For those people, I think they needed to be reintroduced to Firestar in a story from her perspective. The original Firestar miniseries is not super well read. Nicias's New Warriors is a classic, but again, is not an X-Men title. Right. Busick's Avengers, a lot of people our age read, but I don't know how much people... Probably more now because they re-released a lot of it after George Perez passed because he drew that book so beautifully. I hope more people have found it. I'm hoping more people are reading it now. Yeah. It's just that late 90s period is always like a little weird at Marvel in terms of like what you were reading. That was my introduction to Angelica in the comics. I had had the VHS of Spider-Man and his amazing friends. So yeah. that's how I met her first when I was a kid. Um, but then the, the Perez Busiek Avengers was when I got to know her. Uh, and Justice and the rest of the team. I've, I mean, I've always loved, to be clear, I voted for Monet. <laughs> no, I mean... I voted on like eight accounts for Monet, but... Uh, no comment, but yes, I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah, and I've seen the tallies and it was a blowout. Firestar, it, it was not close. It was not close at all is the sense that I've gotten, yeah. Yes, Lorna kind of blew it out too. From my understanding, Lorna and Firestar, boom. This year... This one, it was close this year i can say was a nail biter and it came down to like the day of we were not completely sure who was going to win i think it it benefited from being just six and it benefited from being a shorter voting period but it was very close this year it could have gone three ways i'll, I'll say that i don't know if they want me to say more <laughs> i was relieved that it was a shorter voting period just because it had become a little bit rough on social media <laughs> that week, every year. By the way, actually, while we're on the subject, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen on the Twitter, I'm off Twitter, or excuse me, <laughs> X, the little logo every time you log in is so... That was honestly a big part of it, but it was also just I got two deeply insane, like, anti-Semitic drive-by comments in the same week on both my accounts. Like, one on my main account, one on the podcast account, completely different people, completely different context. Like, of course you love it, Jew, or whatever. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I know, right? And you know what it was? This is crazy. This is crazy. I was at San Diego Comic-Con. I was at the Mortal Kombat panel. Tanya and Sindel are my favorite Mortal Kombat characters, and they're not in every game. So I always get really excited when they're back. I was at the panel, and they revealed that Tanya was back, and they showed her off. And Tanya is a little ethnically ambiguous, I guess. I always thought it was clear that she was supposed to be a black woman, but it's very clear in this game because it's fully high-fidelity, like, modeled faces, and she has dreadlocks. 
And apparently the internet was furious. So when I posted the picture and said she looks beautiful or whatever from the panel, I got, well, of course you like it. You're a gay Jew or whatever. And I'm like, okay, why am I, why am I still, because you can't even report that anymore, right? No, like, I mean, if you report it, they just, they pay the other guy. They pay the Nazi, <laughs> right? So it's like, it well, you know, I'm just, so I was just sort of like, how many swastikas do I want to encounter in my day? It's like, am I visiting Nepal? And it's that kind, like, that's fine. If I'm walking around looking at my phone, I'd like to see zero swastikas, generally speaking. So it's not for me anymore. And I will miss all of you there very much. But please follow Connor Goldsmith and Cerebrocast on Instagram. Follow Cerebrocast on TikTok and YouTube. I'll be around. You're not. I mean, if you're listening to this, I didn't then tweet about didn't it. You. So you found yeah. it. Right. No, exactly. So it'll be yeah. fine. We're all going to be okay. I just needed to opt out because it's only getting more insane over there by the day. It's very Lord of the Flies, yes. end of the world vibes on that website. I will say it did crack me up that he distressed the app icon at like the same time that Fall of X started because now all of our data pages are distressed. <laughs> I know. Well, he also changed the company's name to X Corp. I'm like, Elon. Trust me, we all hate it and we all complain about it in the Slack like every other day. Well, listen. Grimes follows the Cerebro account. So Grimes, if you're listening, <laughs> no, you know what? I don't want to get involved. I don't want to yeah, get involved. It's her no, business. Love Art Angels. Grimes, if you're listening, come on the pod. Actually, we could talk about whatever you want to talk about, except let's not talk about <laughs> Elon. But we could talk about anything else. That'd be great. Honestly, I would love to hear about process or like has, she's probably written comics. At some point. She did a cover for The Wicked and the Divine. That's right. Right. But I mean, like, yeah. she must, she's probably, like, written something. I'm sure she's a she's... songwriter and, like, a poet yeah. and stuff. She's at least considered it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this is not a Grimes podcast. We're back <laughs> on. <laughs> Although I, I could, I could guest on one of those, too. I'm quite the fan. I think it was after Hickman was on because she's a big, she, like, loves Hoxpox. Like, she was all yeah, over it when I've it came out. Before. So I think she just followed when I had Hickman on the show. <laughs> But then I'm like complaining about Twitter on the Twitter account after Grimes followed. I was like, well, I hope she probably doesn't well, care, right? I, I have to sure imagine she sees, she sees a lot of complaining about Twitter. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, she seems but laid back about things like that. We're back on topic. We're back on topic. Yes. So you did. We did. We're only, I'm looking now, we're only like a half an hour into recording and we'll get to the issue that we're here to talk about <laughs> soon. So I think we're doing okay. Not very long after the annual. The annual was December, and that's when Jordan um, asked me if I wanted to do Dark X-Men uh, because he knew... So he had kind of guided me to more serious comics, and he knew that I had wanted to do that, and he knew I had a big affinity for horror, and I work with horror outside of my, my children's work and outside of my superhero work. Um, so he thought of me for this, and he said, do you want to do a horror X-Men book, which is pretty much like you know, my trigger phase. Like you can't really come up with a better sentence than asking me to combine those two things. And the pitch when it came to me was Madeline Pryor, Alex, and CB thinks it'd be cool if you use Albert. Interesting. That's really all we started with. And Albert was not a requirement. It was just CB thinks it'd be cool. Well, that makes sense because he loves that 90s period. I mean, who any I I any love Wolverine the, fan loves yeah. the Larry Hama Wolverine, right? The Larry if they've Hama read it, Wolverine, Mark Silvestri. I mean, they gorgeous, are amazing comics. I hadn't read most of that because I was never that into Wolverine solo as a kid. So I hadn't read most of that until I did this show. 
because I was doing Jubilee and I was like, well, I got to read all of this because it's where half her important character development happens. And uh, I was stunned at how much I loved it. <laughs> They're really great. I was like, you know what? You know what? I should have listened to the straight guys about this one because it's really fucking good. Yeah. I should have listened. I was just going to say, too, if you don't read it, you miss a lot of good Jubilee stuff because a lot of her important and, you know, most of her friendship with Wolverine comes from the solo book. Yeah, whereas in the main book, it comes across a little scrappy do is here now, you know, for with no explanation. At times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, it, 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 I mean, there is an explanation, but like, they're bonding. Yeah, yeah. The fact that she's suddenly the most important person in his world is like, when did that happen? And the answer is yeah. in their book, which you should also be reading. And I just didn't because yes. I was a gay child. And I said, mm, <laughs> there's no girls in that book besides Jubilee. And she's like a kid. I want to read about like cool women. With big well, hair. Well, Lady Deathstrike is in lots of those issues. No, I know. And I... And she has big nails. I had the action hair. figure, yes. but I will say, like, the classic Lady Deathstrike design with the, like, head piece where they're, like, leather tendrils? You know, I don't know that anyone besides Barry Windsor Smith knows, knows what, what those are. are. Yeah. I was, like, I was... I, I thought she looked cool, but it was it was a little, like what's going on over here? Yeah. And not in like a spiral way where the point is what's going on over here. Just to think where I was like, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. Yeah. But yeah, no, she's fun. But so that's how it started. And of course you wanted to write about Maddie. You love Maddie. I love Maddie. I mean, and I love Alex. And you I, love Alex. Like me, rare. We're a rare, small fraternity of yes. <laughs> Alex lovers. And I found, you know, he's kind of the most contentious part of the book and the pitch so far because people have strong feelings about Alex and Lorna. People have strong sure. feelings about Alex and Maddie. And people have strong feelings about Alex being kind of a loser. But I'm I'm sorry to inform people, as someone who loves Alex Summers, he's kind of a loser. Alex is a huge loser. That's it's what's fun about the Alex. Point of his character. Yeah. The time the character has existed. And I say that as someone who thinks he's awesome. The, the point is he overcomes it to do cool things despite making some really dumb decisions. Well, it's weird because people can understand that about Iceman. He's very much in that kind of mold a little bit where it's like, or even Peter Parker, where it's like this guy never wins, right? Like that's sort of the idea. And Scott wins, except on the operatic insane level of like the star-crossed <laughs> romance stuff. But sure. in terms of just like being the guy, Scott wins. And Alex is the younger brother who just can't get it together. In the same way that I find Lorna personally I think Jean Grey is one of the most fascinating characters in comics, but in terms of like which one I like really personally <laughs> react, it's Lorna or Madeline. I mean, like I'm mm -hmm. always more interested in the character who within the story is not being told that they're the most important person or is being told you're really not living up to the example set by so-and-so. Which is weird because I'm the oldest sibling. I don't know where this complex comes. I think I was just like gay and chubby and like insecure, but I've always felt drawn to these characters. It's also just interesting. And I think, what's the term in wrestling? Kayfab? Is that how you say it? Kayfabe. Kayfabe in wrestling. Like, if I understand it correctly, and Steve Orlando has tried to explain it to me 50 times, but I'm not a wrestling person. If I understand it correctly, that basically means we all know it's fake, but we're agreeing not to acknowledge it's fake because we're enjoying it and going with it. 
it's sort of lying and we all know that we're lying, but we're lying because it makes the product better. So yes. like your kayfabe sister is a woman that we, the viewers know is not actually your sister, even though this is being presented as a reality show. And we're all agreeing to accept that this actress is your sister for the purposes of this storyline. Right. I think comics as it pertains to social media conversation in particular is kind of at constant tension with the idea of kayfabe. I use the term on this show all the time for exactly that reason. Perfect example, Peter Parker. The reason we all love Peter Parker is because he's constantly failing and overcoming. But oftentimes fans just want him to succeed. Because they love him, but that's not a because story. And it's not the reason not the we read the story, right? Right. So... And if you if you were to get that story you would become bored because the reason you like Peter Parker is that he fails and he overcomes. I said in the Longshot episode that I think Longshot in a lot of ways has become in a way that's very appropriate for the media studies foundation that Annie Nascenti <laughs> built into the character. Once it's established by Claremont and Nisiesa that he's on this eternal cycle of revolutions that always fail he becomes a metaphor not only for the hero in media, but specifically for the comic book hero, because one must imagine Sisyphus Happy is the entire premise <laughs> of ongoing comics not owned by the writer, where the characters are not allowed to age more than about roughly five years ever. Right. So there's something really interesting about that. And part of the kayfabe, I think, also is in treating the characters like they are real or like they are entities who transcend the writer, right? And I get that because in some ways they do. Yeah. You're not the first person and won't be the last person to write Maddie or Alex or any of these other characters. Even Carmen was created by Vidayala. So like- yeah. There's a degree to which work for hire does mean that the characters are the thing that the fans are most invested in. On the other hand, they only do things because it's a story in which they're fictional characters. So it's just a fascinating, strange phenomenon. It is, and it gets weirder once you're in the eye of the tornado, so to speak. But it's like wrestling because characters lose when they have to lose for the story. It's an angle. Right. And wrestling fans understand that that's how that works and that the actors, in this case, the fictional characters, have negotiated <laughs> all the details out beforehand because they're not real. Neither the wrestler right. characters nor the comic book characters, you know? And I should say, too, you know, I'm not trying to condescend or judge the readers, I, I've been very grateful with the response I've gotten on these these projects so far. But just as a whole, too, I think we were braced for more outrage from the gala issue, not because we wanted it, but because we did. It's provocative. Yeah. Yeah, it's provocative. And I think we were all pleasantly surprised that people took it in good faith and understood this is a story where bad things are happening because the story is about what happens after that. I think the thing we have to remember, too, I don't know if there's a parallel in wrestling, but there's a period of time where there were not many X-Men books, period. You know, there were three or four a month. Mm -hmm. And reception on those was not universally beloved at times. So I think a lot of readers are still coming from that sort of scarcity mindset of like, yes. oh, this could go away at any moment. But also, like, 
there are like 20 X-Men titles right now. This is like, the most X-Men titles there have <laughs> ever been. And I'm including the 90s when we were alive and there were like 50 X-Men titles and they were all ongoing. X-Men got right. to issue 75. X-Men, yeah, the Nate Gray solo series. Like, come on, guys. We haven't had it this good in a long time. Yeah, and, and not to like, you know, peek from behind the curtain too much, but like, Iron Man and Miss Marvel are X-Men titles right now. Like, yeah, correct. That should be a good sign to you that this is not us being like, screw the mutants. Let's get it's out not of Marvel here. saying, <laughs> get those homosexuals out of here. Like, that's not what's happening. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, so I hope people continue to take it in good faith. And we have a lot of fun stuff planned with Fall of X. And like I said earlier, you know, I have multiple other X-Men things planned. So it's it's not like we're all dropping the mic in December. And one of your other things is now happening. You and Steph Williams are on the Infinity Comics series about the losers of the vote this year. Obviously a different vibe from Secret X-Men. <laughs> but something that I think is promising about it is I have to imagine it's going somewhere and I'm interested to see where it goes. So I definitely think people should read those weekly stories especially if you love one or multiple of those characters who tragically fell at the gala because i can't help but think that there's more in store for those characters well i certainly can't comment on that but i can say these six stories and it's not even accurate to call it the losers because we did all six this well time. so you know what that's the thing so the losers of this yeah. is the kayfabe part actually the losers of the real world <laughs> vote in universe were the winners of the vote. Right. And I do think that that's important. All six of those characters, plus Sink and Talon, were chosen within the story by the people of Krakoa. Yes, they all became X-Men. And they may be dead X-Men at the moment, but that's not to say that, you know, there aren't possibilities. Historically, that is a liminal state of being. Yes. Although, a... <laughs> now, who knows? Well, now, who knows? I'm just saying that even before Krakoan Resurrection, characters sure. had started making jokes within the comic about yes. how rare it is for an X-Men character to stay dead for very long. So, you know, hold fast. That's all. <laughs> yes. I'm excited to see you and Steph take a crack at those characters. The idea of Steph Williams writing anything with Joanna Cargill in it makes me so excited I could scream. I love Steph so much. We've become really good friends through this process. And uh, I was very grateful to get to collaborate with her on these and on the art the art team, Noemi Vittori and, and Pete. I would butcher his last name, unfortunately, but the credits are all in Unlimited. Mm -hmm. um, and these six are really... You know, people say all the time they want like slice of life Krakoan stories. This is kind of what you're going to get for these six because of how the gala went. You know, there was a half a second where we could have told the story with them. So instead, we cast a glance backward and we wanted to celebrate why these six would get chosen in the first place. Why they so, would win in the story. Why yeah. they would win in the story. So each one stands alone as this sort of celebration of the character in the weeks leading up to the Hellfire Gala. So Prodigies was, you know, five weeks before the Hellfire Gala. Um, this week is Cannonball, four weeks before the Hellfire Gala. So we have a little framing sequence with Jumbo getting them dressed up. And then we have a, a spotlight on what makes them them, like celebrating kind of a key trait, um, a key virtue of each of these characters and, and why their peers would want them to represent Krakoa. It's six really great characters who were chosen, so I'm excited to see. six stellar characters. It's really like, I, we didn't know how it would go having a smaller pool of characters, but they're all so worthy. 
it's nice to be able to celebrate them in this way. There's no Micromax. Like, you know, Listen, like there's no one where it's like, this is a gimme. Yeah, I like Micromax, but, you know, clear I like Micromax <laughs> as a character. I didn't have any illusions about his likelihood of being on an X-Men roster, you know? No, literally zero chance. <laughs> <laughs> So that brings us to a peculiar X-Men roster because it's one of those ad hoc X-Men teams that's not really official, like when Jean mind-wiped Joanna Cargill and Eve of Destruction, or like the Muir Island X-Men. Although retroactively, I think of them as kind of more legit now that Moira is Moira X, because it's like, who would Charles be to say that's not a real X-Men team? You just think it's legit because Amanda Sefton was on it. You're not wrong. <laughs> but actually, you know what? I think that Madrox and Siren deserve that moment also at that point sure, in yeah. X-Men history. And uh and, and listen, they're on, they're on it's Wikipedia an, an Alison Stewart. <laughs> She's on, on the sporkle forever, <laughs> you know, as an um, all X-Men members all time, right? <laughs> It was a nice good showing for Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, whose backstory I did not know when I first read that comic. So, mm -hmm. you know, real rough. Yeah, that's a tough one. At some point with an indigenous guest, I will do a Cerebro appendix on Tom and Sharon because that's that's a wild ride, my friend. I don't know. I honestly cannot tell you why, but I was at the grocery store the other day and I was like, should someone bring them back and like, Fix it, or is that I think more there's ways, <laughs> but I don't know. It's not as easy. There's no other character, right? The way that, like, right. when Nicieza retcons Canon in, the solve for the Betsy and Canon problem had to be, it's what they did. I mean, I think that's the way you fix that. Sharon and Tom didn't switch bodies. They just transformed their... Google yeah. it. We don't, we don't need to get it. We're not qualified. <laughs> we we're we're super not qualified, and we don't have time. <laughs> So anyway, point is, this is one of those teams. It's a team that is not officially licensed by the Xavier Institute. It is a team that's calling itself the X-Men because fuck you is why. <laughs> there is a baton pass, though, in Dark Web that I think is really nice when Jean says to Maddie, you can say it. Yes. And Maddie does the to me, my X-Men. It should be no um, surprise that anyone listening to this podcast, I have strong opinions on Madeline Pryor. <laughs> See the 18 and a half hour episode 100 <laughs> of this podcast that Sarah Sunshine and I did as a joke. We were like, what if it's just really long? But then we were just like, we're just going to go until we're like done. And we just, we just kept going. Uh, it's, but it's in five parts and they are discrete parts like that were recorded. There's a, what do we think is going to be going on in Dark X-Men thing? You can finally listen to it. You told me that you weren't going to listen until you were done writing this book. Yeah, once I do the last lettering pass, but I, I've been holding <laughs> off for, for purity of mind and, and sanity. Well, I'll tell you though that like, I'm going to have questions because I love my girl, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm glad. I was very pleased with how Jerry wrote her in Dark Web X-Men. I loved how Zeb wrote her in all of the Dark Web, in and out. Zeb. Nobody, I mean, the Hellion story, nobody to me but Chris Clarebaud quite nails that Goblin Queen dialogue <laughs> the way that, that Zeb does. You're going a little more naturalistic here. I mean, like, when she gets yeah. up on the stage and it's like, lo, for it is I, the goblin majesty, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I think more naturalistic is better for, for the tone of, yeah. this, uh, of this book. But um, I was like, ah, oh, it's my favorite character. It's my actual literal friend writing it. 
it's going to be this really high stakes, upsetting era of X-Men. I really hope that I like don't hate this. And then guess what? <laughs> I loved it. So that's what a coup for me personally, but also for you. Yeah, I'm relieved. I was very nervous to tell. I told you I was very nervous when I when I told you I was doing this book because I know how much Maddie means to you. I mean, and I I would have had trouble lying if I didn't uh, if I didn't like it. <laughs> I really would have. And because I'm not good at that. I'm really, really bad <laughs> at lying. It's like my mother has always said you should never play poker because <laughs> I just I can't. I'm just like, no, it was great it's so good <laughs> anyway so dark x-men 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 shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples and now miss candy southern and me your host with a message from our sponsors long time no see beautiful boys and groovy gals the summer's just beginning and i for one <laughs> oh my that one was a whopper what's the matter candy Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com X-Men, X-Men. To nod back to Hellions, the earlier title by Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia, mostly there were some villains, but it was mostly Zeb and Steven. And Steven did all the covers, mm -hmm. which is where the Alex and Maddie story begins in the Krakoan age. It's nice to have Segovia on covers here. It feels very like a continuous vibe. Yeah, I mean, I'm very grateful for it. Steven's done amazing work on these and he's great to work with. I was so nervous of being in Hellion's shadow that when Jordan told me it was Steven Segovia doing the covers, you were like, like no! are you kidding me? You're setting me up. <laughs> and not even that, the first mock-up of the title, because we didn't have the art yet, the first mock-up of the title was over over a, a Hellion's cover. And I was like, you're oh, just wow. doing this to torture me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, it is a sequel. It's not the yeah, same book. It follows. Yeah, it's it not follows. the same book at all. It's one of two sequels to Hellions, the other one being Sabretooth and the Exiles, right? So yes. it's like that cast kind of bifurcated and went their separate ways. I think Sabretooth and the Exiles is more in keeping with the tone. This is a very different kind of book. It's just where the Alex and yes. Maddie story continues. You have it start in Hellions, then you get the New Mutants arc, then you get Dark Web, and then you're here. Yes, and that's that's one of the reasons no one else from that cast is here. Um, there there are some characters that I could have you know made a good case for for a Dark mm -hmm. X Men book, but I wanted to make sure that it was clearly a, a different step, a new its thing. Own thing. Yeah, so so none of those other baddies could could have made the jump. <laughs> On the front cover, we have what was solicited as the roster of the team. Madeline Pryor doing the hand-reaching-out telepath pose <laughs> that Xavier or Jean or Emma is always doing on one of these roster covers, which I loved as, like, a cute moment. 
Alex and Gambit flanking her, Warren in the background as Archangel, M-Plate lurking on a tree branch, and then in the foreground, the three characters I think everyone was really startled to see. Zero <laughs> from Generation Hope, Albert, the cyborg duplicate of Wolverine from Larry Hama's Wolverine in the 90s, and Azazel. <laughs> I was in play also confused a lot of people. I, I really realized... because he was in one of those early data pages, him and Celine, like with Krakoa doing stuff. So people yeah. have been like, when's M plate going to show up? So I thought that wouldn't but surprise people for the general public. It, it was, it seemed what confused them the most were, were in, uh, in plate zero and Albert because Azazel, they at least know from the movie and, and infamy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, so Azazel, for people who are not familiar, and by the way, much like Gala and Gala, Azazel and Azazel are both correct pronunciations of <laughs> the Hebrew say, and Arabic spoken, name. Yeah, you've spoken to Chuck, so does he say Azazel? He said Azazel, so he's okay, well. with you. I just, in my head, it's like Hebrew, not sure, sure. English. But here's the thing, <laughs> Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So, like, you know, choose your own adventure, really. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of has vowels. It's complicated. Don't worry about it. The, for yes. the Jews, that was it. That was you get it. You're laughing now. <laughs> Hopefully, I hope you're laughing. It's tough. Hebrew school, low key, by myself at age 33 was not fun at all. That's something I really, you really needed. I think like a classroom for that because that's that language is hard. It's real. Uh, it's real complicated. <laughs> so anyway, Azazel, the alleged father of Nightcrawler, although the X-Men Blue Origins book that's coming up, the Cyspera one-shot, seems to be revisiting Nightcrawler's origin. We can't talk about what possibly could be in there, but it's interesting to me that Azazel is in a book at the same time. Yeah, and I can say that I've, I've read that, and I helped talk things out with Cy. We, we had a lot of conversations about that book, so I'm, I'm very excited for folks to get to read it. It's great. Very cool. M-Plate, for people who are not familiar, is the evil brother of Monet, who was the major antagonist for the first half of Generation X in the 90s. He is a dark sorcerer who <laughs> is like Maddie in certain ways, but whereas she consorts with demons in like sort of a Jewish or Christian or Muslim, like Abrahamic religion way, like hell, he is more into Lovecraftian kind of like otherworldly things from beyond. Uh, he's got like a mouth in his hands and he can use it to suck out mutant bone marrow, which is what he feeds on because he's a bone marrow vampire. And it's super complicated. Go back to the Monet Sink episodes <laughs> for more on M-Plate. At some point he'll get his own episode because now he's a relevant character again. But uh, I that's one that, much like the Monet episode, I'm not super looking forward to because tracing those retcons is hellish. Uh, but <laughs> here he is. It's her evil brother. That's who that is. You can see that he has the, like, kind of a penancy look to him. So that tracks if you've only become familiar with Monet in the new era. What led you to choose these other characters? Because you said the ones that were suggested to you, it's, it's Maddie and Alex's team. CB thinks it would be neat to throw Cyborg Wolverine in there for a Dark X-Men cover because that is a fun thing to do. And you're looking at this cover. It's fun. Yeah, it looks great. <laughs> How did you land on these other characters? Well, so Gambit was suggested to me. That was later on. So we do, um, you know, before each of these big eras, we do basically a draft. We go around and we, we're all on a call together and we make sure that no one, you know, desperately needs Emma Frost to 
grow wings in this book, but she has to lose her telepathy in another or something else. And we also like to make sure, of course, that major characters are accounted for. And as we were on this call and we were talking about what we needed for our casts and who was going to be where, we realized no one really had a Gambit story in motion and that uh, he would fit really well in my cast. And he ended up being such an important part. And I'd already asked for Carmen Cruz, who, of course- Well, that's the fun thing because Gimmick started as a Gambit cosplayer in Children of the Atom. Exactly. and now they finally get to meet her meeting the real guy who's probably not as charming as the version or is very but you get what i mean like not as yeah morally upright perhaps as the hero she might have imagined gambit is a pretty shades of gray anti-heroic kind of character a lot of the time but actually in this book he ended up being kind of the good guy well because you of who you surrounded him (laughs) with right like that's what's fun here is like if the most heroic character in your cast besides alex because (laughs) we'll get to that yeah is gambit then you've got a pretty shitty situation happening morally around you which is also why it's fun to throw gimmick in there because she's a character with a really strong sense of principle and that's why I, I was so grateful when Jerry suggested I take Gambit. And also, you know, I have almost no regrets about past work, but I will say when I was doing X-Men 92, House of 92, I often found I just had nothing for Gambit to do. Mm. Like, I think if I go back, Gambit's like the least essential person I wrote in that. So I was really glad I got to like give him a fair shake in a book. He ended up being, you know, kind of the most moral core of this really nasty group I've assembled. But from from that core group, and I knew I wanted Carmen because I wanted that Kitty Pride character. Yeah. To me, the very unique thing about the X-Men is that there's pretty much always a younger viewpoint character, whether it's Kitty, Jubilee, Armor, Pixie, you know, what have you. And it's almost always a girl, which I think yes. is really special about X-Men and about Chris Claremont just doing that at a time when it was not considered the typical thing to do. Yeah, It was a time when more girls read comics because everybody was reading comics, but there's still this idea that girls will identify with a boy character and boys won't identify with a girl character. And X-Men has always proven that that's simply not true. Yeah, pretty much the only time they bucked the trend was Quentin Quire. Quentin Quire. Lots of people hate Quentin as being a little brat. So, yeah, and I mean, know. you know, and but he's also very popular because of his time yeah. as that character. So, you know, it, it is an important role to have. And I was glad to see Carmen come back into the mix because I thought that Children of the Atom set her up really nicely to be one of those characters. Yeah, and I knew that I, I really wanted that Kitty Pride role to be someone who was exclusive to the Krakoan era. Right, someone new. Yeah, because, you know, there are lots of great Academy X characters I could have pulled who mm-hmm. you, you would have been able to. They're like perpetually teenagers, you know, more or less. So it's tough you for them. Could yeah. Have, yeah. But I really wanted someone who was new to Krakoa. So that was kind of like the character core. And I wanted to surround them with people. The thing about the X Men, almost all the big villains have been X Men. <laughs> like, right, at this point. Even Lady Deathstrike. Yes. If you are an (laughs) evil mutant, chances are at some point you said, you know what, for the cause, I'm going to go hang out with Scott and Gene. Right. Well, I mean, Gene was dead for lots of it. But But I get what you're saying. Lady Deathstrike's not even a mutant. She was just so popular that eventually she's going to be on a good guy team because that's just how it works sometimes. Yeah. And so I really wanted a group of 
Can I swear on here? I forget. Uh, baby. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just horrible bastards. Like the that's worst not even a swear. You can say that on network. It de-escalated in my mind, but <laughs> I, I wanted real monsters. You know, I mm -hmm. there's been a Dark X Men book before. It was very specific to Norman Dark Osborn's Dark X Men. Yes. Yeah. That was Dark X-Men in sort of like the, the evil corporate manipulative sense. Dark Mirror, yeah. Yes. This is Dark X-Men as a horror book. This is Evil Dead. This is like, you know, appealing to that sensibility. So I wanted monsters and I wanted characters who in no other regular 616 story would they say, you know what? I do believe in the X-Men cause. I'm going to team up with you guys. Like, that's yeah, not right. something that Azazel or Implate are, are ever going to think. Zero might, but I wouldn't trust him if he did. <laughs> so right, no, exactly. And, like, even, again, of the, like, standard hero characters on the roster, Havoc has his moments, and Gambit yeah. and Warren are two of the more morally complicated characters in that lineup they've had very dark eras right they've both been the personification they've both of been death, death literally <laughs> right which a lot of people thought i was going to work with here but no one's got time for that i've got five issues this you've is got five issues you got five issues <laughs> also knights of x jumped into that for gambit yeah we just handled that uncanny x-force i feel like was really the last you know the word on word. it for warren, warren to some extent also, like, if Apocalypse isn't in the story, what's the, like, what are they going to sit around and exactly. be like, weird when I was death and so were you one time. I know. Let's have a coffee. But that's a fanfic. And I bet it's a good fanfic. And someone should write it uh, somewhere on the internet. I'm but just I saying, like. I don't have like, room for it in these hundred pages. <laughs> you don't have room. It, yeah. It's not business that moves the plot forward. And there's just a Correct. real estate Correct. concern. But you had a fun opportunity here with the 10 page backup to just do something a little fun and silly that wasn't plot essential and we'll get there yes. when we get there because i really enjoyed that and we'll talk about Thank you. that as well i should also say maggot does play a sizable role in the book he's just not on he wasn't it's solicited not as cover, he's not on yeah. the first cover but he's in the first issue as a member of the team so yeah yeah and he's prominently featured on the second uh Ma maggot is an important part of the book it, he just didn't end up on the first cover it was it, there are a lot of characters on a lot of characters <laughs> and he's less shocking than a lot of the other ones here and less famous than gambit and archangel so he's also you know you can already tell from the first issue he's not in love with the way maddie's gonna do things so right this kind of flanking group shot makes less sense for him anyway sure getting into the issue we open with a beautiful series of panels of maddie in kind of a limbo dreamscape space the hell of limbo gives way to something that Maddie, I don't think, has seen before, which is the snowy limbo of the original Chris Claremont, Storm and Ileana Magic miniseries. Maddie's eyes are green on this page, which I always appreciate uh, when when Maddie and Jean have the right eye color. It's a <laughs> it's a struggle in the history of X Men comics. It was a late fix. They were red in the first <laughs> They were red. That's kind yeah. of cool too Which i just don't like could when, have just said like, i just don't like when they're blue because it's sure. they're not supposed to be blue yes. it's really funny sometimes there are issues where gene and maddie have different eye colors in the same issue from each <laughs> other and you're like no it's really important yeah. that they have the same <laughs> eye color it's like a really key uh, not that scott knows the difference but you get what yeah. i'm saying also the the snow so the, the snow is actually alaska so that was what i was going to ask right because yeah. she sees 
like she recognizes the the f- sensation of being in Alaska and all that, and it feels like her longing for Alaska brought forth that different version of limbo that we've seen before in Ileana stories, but not in a Maddie story yet. So that was fun. I enjoyed that moment because the snow and Alaska are so indelibly associated with Madeline as a character. She's having a dream. It turns out she's at the limbo embassy in New York. Alex is waking her up. I have to say Jonas Scharf draws one of the hotter Alex's like not since Silvestri's hot bod Alex jogging in his little shorts. Has Alex been served quite this well by He's an artist? He's so hunky in this and you just get it. You get why it's very, he's just Ken, but like what a Ken, you know what I mean? <laughs> you really get it. You get the appeal. And yeah, I want to be always clear. I, it, so. I wrote all of this before the Barbie before movie. Before the Barbie out. movie, right. No, it's just, it's the zeitgeist. It's not your yes. fault. You and Greta were channeling something. Our mutual friend, Josh Cornelon. Corneal. Corneal. Did a very, very funny um, Barbie and Ken um, um, Maddie and Alex. Yeah, it was good. Alex, yeah. (laughs) So the Limbo Embassy NYC, X weeks after the fall. This is a sexy boudoir scene, which is always fun to see in a Marvel comic. I like the tone setter here. It's like these two are not just a couple. Like these two fuck. Like there's something adult about their relationship which is very true to inferno back in the day and the crazy goblin queen and goblin prince designs (laughs) that it's shocking anyone ever allowed to see prince in a marvel comic but thank god they did because a million little a million little gay people of all genders looked at that page and said something's happening here right now we see that in sort of a parallel to the general protest of mutants that's happening worldwide, there is also a protest of the Limbo Embassy, which is somewhat more reasonable than the protest <laughs> about mutant kind. Yeah. This, you know, it is an embassy that was dropped there without asking the city council from a foreign power that has attacked New York City in a declaration of war twice, led by the lady who did it both times. So, you know, I, I get also, why they might be pretty literally hell, pretty so. literally <laughs> hell. So I get why they might not be jazzed about it. Personally, I would like to have diplomatic relations with hell because I think that's better than not knowing what hell is thinking. You don't want to just show up in hell one day and you're like, well, shit, now I got eternity to wish that I had <laughs> talked to them at one of their places of business and, and figured out what they're all about. Cause now I'm really playing without a net here forever. <laughs> But yes, so people are not thrilled. We see that one of the children at the protest has an adorable Tickle Me Nimrod kind of doll (laughs) going on. The Nimrod merch is one of the most chilling things about this, like in the in-universe merch. Yeah. And the cute like Nimrod balloon at the end of Judgment Day and like all of like that's so, because Nimrod is cute. That's the thing about Nimrod. And so of course, they would market him as a cute mascot character. And you're just like, oh, it's the cute fascism mascot. That's so unpleasant. And what people have to remember too is Orcus took responsibility for fixing Judgment Day. So this little kid thinks Nimrod is like a superhero. Yes, exactly. Right. No, the kid doesn't know any better. You know, it's just seeing those children being subverted is upsetting, right? 
Maddie is in a bad mood because she is not happy about what happened at the gala and she feels like she's not doing enough. Even though she's been offering sanctuary to mutants who managed to escape, she doesn't feel like that's enough. It's just not enough for her. She does a sexy burn the sheets into her costume thing, which is a bummer to Alex because the sheets were expensive. And they walk off into the hall where we see some of the mutants to whom Maddie is giving amnesty in her sanctuary that the city of New York has agreed not to trespass on. The MLF member Reaper Fatal from Beasts Brotherhood, Dark Beasts Brotherhood back in the 90s, uh, X-Factor character for a minute, but not seen in a long time. Fantasia, who I was thrilled to spot. The little girl with like the octopus feet has been in a lot of Krakoa era shots, but I don't think as a character with a name, but it, it no, does hook it back one. into the like, that's one of those kids from Krakoa, you know? This is a real fun group of characters here. We see Zero skulking around in the back at the lower panel also. Being creepy to the girls who don't want to yeah. pay attention to him. You know, I, I do love my cameos. You do. <laughs> and I did I did want to fit this. And, you know, most of these people appear in the backup short, so you get them named mm-hmm. on panel. The, the biggest surprise, I don't know that there are really more than five or six Fantasia fans, but they're very loud. We... Love a Fantasia moment. You put her in X Men '92, also, and I was like, "He I gets me." I put her in X Men '92. I like Fantasia. Apparently, I should have done a lot more Fantasia in this. Clearly, book. well, this, listen. This is there's always it. next time. <laughs> At least I can say I don't kill her horribly, which is not true for everyone on this spread. You also brought her back. She hasn't been seen since House of M. Yes, like you brought her back for the first time in almost 20 years. So you did your she part. You're, it's She's very like powers. Starship Troopers. I'm doing my part. Like you did it. She exists. She's floating around. She's got her spooky yes. wig on. She's having a great yes. time. Time, like we're good to go next time whenever somebody wants to pick her up for a story i do also like the idea that i mean you know i i don't dictate things to my artist down to the you know the detail but jonas drawing her hovering there i like to think she just hovers in the entryway yeah she just floats around she's not going or coming from anywhere she's no she's just, just hanging, hanging out, out. yeah <laughs> Maddie walks casually through a mirror, which is really funny. You can do anything in limbo. You just I love stupid it. magical shit like that where she just like they're doing a like an Aaron Sorkin walk and talk and she just walks yes. right through the mirror, which I think is so funny. Uh, we see more characters as they start to head down the stairs. That's infestation from the Jean Grey school, right? Is that her name? I forget. The yeah, bug infestation girl. and snot, who also appeared in the Pride story I yes. did with Carmen Cruz. So in the Pride story, you see them claim amnesty and, and here they are in the in the embassy. We get set up that Azazel and M-Plate have some kind of pre-existing relationship. M-Plate insists he doesn't owe Azazel anything, and Azazel disagrees. Alex follows Maddie through the mirror, and here is where, right before the title drop, we find out that Maddie heard Jean cry out when Jean died. I don't know if the implication is that lots of people did, but I took this to mean that Maddie specifically heard it. I think you can leave it up to the reader to decide. Uh, Certainly, you know, most mutants were preoccupied at the moment. And I would think even if others heard her, Maddie really heard her. Really? Like, I just, I, what, what I mean is that it has that, 
What I love about having both characters back, and I hope that we have both of them back. I mean, Jean obviously is indisposed at the moment, but she's Jean Grey. I'm not super worried about her. (laughs) What I like about having them both back and having them reconciled to whatever extent such a thing is possible in Dark Web, there's now a really appealing hook to them as sisters and having that kind of like twin telepathy thing that's fun in stories like this. And so I liked the idea that now that their hearts are kind of open to one another, the first thing that happens is she's brutally murdered and Maddie feels it. It underlines that moment, what Maddie wanted, that to me, my X-Men from Dark Web, like Jean's letting me do the thing. And now it's like, oh, now Jean's dead and I have to be Jean. And I have to be Jean is Madeline Pryor's least favorite scenario (laughs) to be in, right? (laughs) Historically speaking. So... It's a tough thing because it is what she wants to do. She wants to step up to play, but she's going to do it her way. Yes. And I can't wait to see what that way is. It's already been fun. A little more violent than Jean's way. <laughs> yeah, well, but not really. Like, the thing about Jean... <laughs> I'm big up on Jean right now. Jean's stock is real high in my book at the moment, so this is a compliment. Jean is very violent, but in a way that is more polite. Yes. What I like about Maddie and Jean, again, existing in the same space as characters is that their similarities and their differences comment by contrast on each other in ways that are interesting. Jean would never play it this way, but she would get it. Yeah. And I really think if they had like if they could meet under better circumstances, they would probably hit it off really well. I mean, listen, I'm not going to talk about it because. Someday, I mean, listen, if you, you go from Spider-Ham to Dark X-Men in what, two years? You never know. I'm, so I, I've never got, know. I'm keeping it up. I'm keeping it up to also, I'm not, I don't want to say to you who's writing the character, yes, this yes. would be a fun story. You know, like that feels. Yes. La, 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 right. No, exactly. So anyway, Dark X-Men, there is a kingdom. Steve Fox, Jonas Scharf, Frank Martin on colors, VCs Clayton Coles on letters. I love the way that this is styled this like fall of x oh yeah the way that it's like falling apart now that we've gotten so used to the data pages this is a great bit of design work jay bowen he works his butt off shout out to you jay (laughs) we get a nice moment here this was the preview page and everyone was obsessed with cerebone the (laughs) skull hat that maddie has created somehow a name i did not predict cerebone We find out here that it is properly called the Mercy Crown. This was the preview art when it was first shared, just as pencils, where I was like, look at Alex's titties. They are (laughs) sitting. We are back to the 80s, baby. And I was pleased. He should be like, he's not slim. Scott's slim. Alex should be like the one who's going to the gym a lot because it makes him feel a little bit better, (laughs) you know? So anyway... He asks if it's a demon cerebro, and it basically is exactly that. But it is something that she has created, a mystical telepathy-enhancing device in the similar vein to Xavier's cerebro. It's basically like a soul cerebro. So if you think of Charles's device as coming from the place of the mind, the place of telepathy, Maddie's working with more eldritch forces here. So her, her device, she's not going to make anything as crude as a copy of something Charles Xavier had. She's doing something her own way here. Maddie doesn't like copies as a (laughs) word. She thinks it's disrespectful, but she appreciates something that looks similar, but is actually very different. 
So that's sort of the ethos that I think we're carrying forward here. (laughs) She has figured out, because she's smarter than Charles Xavier, that obviously the mutants are lost, not dead, because she would have felt a quarter million mutants die simultaneously. Duh. (laughs) She's just very like... I mean... Charles Charles was in a tough place. Charles was under duress. I he yeah. was distressed. I do yes. I do under, I'm just I'm mad at him right now. So we have to <laughs> we have to I we'll bear with. We'll bear with. But I'm yes. a little I'm a little pissed at that guy at the moment. We cut to Queens where we revisit Carmen from Children of the Adam gimmick who will be our POV teen character, as we talked about earlier, and her girlfriend, Buddy, formerly Cyclops Lass of the Children of the Atom, who, if you didn't read that miniseries, were a bunch of human fans of the X-Men who had appropriated alien tech to pretend to be mutants because they hero-worshipped the X-Men. It's a very interesting story about cultural appropriation, about cultural appreciation, about longing and desire, and it's a miniseries that you can read by Vita Ayala that's really, really good. I really, really enjoyed it. Cyclops Last was probably the most unbearable character, by design, I think. And so it is appropriate, I think, that it's her father who narcs. She was the dilettante, right? Like she was the one in that story where it was like, you really don't get the weight of what you're trying to do. The twist, for people who didn't read it, is that it turns out Gimmick is a mutant. She just hadn't manifested yet. So she becomes the only one who can reach Krakoa and it asks the question of how we should feel about all of that. It's a good book. But I like the idea that Buddy grew up in a home where you kind of look out for yourself first and don't necessarily think about less fortunate people, right? I also think it's not personal. I have to keep my family safe. That's been the justification for a lot of terrible things. It sure has. Yeah. It's not one specific thing here. Obviously it's not, you know, it's not world war two. It's not, you know, more recent things, but no, but turning in your neighbors to protect yourself is the hallmark of any fascist regime is the expectation that you will report on your neighbors. Right. And especially here, you have the layers of Buddy and Carmen are queer. Carmen's a person of color and Buddy is not. It's an interracial relationship. Carmen's a mutant and Buddy is not. There's a lot of mutant metaphor layers here. No matter how you relate to the experience of a character being a mutant, a lot of them are represented on this page. So it hits pretty hard. And I think like the tragic thing is Buddy's dad loves her very much. And I think he thinks he's doing the right thing in this moment. The right thing is really, really terrible, though. We get a data page of the Children of the Atom texting, then cut back to the room where Buddy is horrified at what's happened. We get the I have to keep my family safe. The Orcus troops advance. Carmen is knocked out pretty quickly and is taken for processing. She's broken free by an ad hoc X-Men team made up of Gambit, Archangel, and Maggot. Uncanny Avengers 1 is out, right? Yes. Yeah, so we saw Monet and Psylocke were operating in a very similar way. Yes. Where with the fall of X... People who manage not to go through the gate, if they're that kind of person, are going all out bloodshed in the streets. (laughs) Yes. Viva la resistance is like kind of the vibe that (laughs) we're getting, right? But in the World War II sense, like the McKee. Yes. Yes. So I have my little pod. They're staying, you know, under the radar, doing what they can, making quick hits. Guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Causing as much 
harm to Orcus, as much damage to Orcus as they can. Guerrilla? Is it guerrilla warfare? In English, do we just say gorilla? Is it like Azazel? No, we say gorilla. We say gorilla. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know what? I just, I, I realized, I'm like, have I ever said that out loud? No, it's gorilla. I'm live on the air. <laughs> so the Orcus guys, in a panic, activate their secret weapon. Albert, the android Wolverine, who immediately guts Warren through the stomach, which I was annoyed by. I gotta be real, Steve. He does heal. He has got healing blood, yeah. so he'll be fine, I assume. I mean, you'll have to read number two. <laughs> Warren is another one where, like, I'm just like, Warren fans, rise, and, like, six of us stand up and start waving our arms. Yeah, I have to say, I was... I. Because this was one of the early preview pages, too. And I yeah. got, like, one or one or two upset Warren comments. I was like, oh, people are going to be really bummed about this. I've done, like, a dozen interviews now. No one asks me about Warren. <laughs> you know, it's... I also think that people... He's a Lee Kirby 60s 05 X-Men character, and he always feels pretty safe overall so i love warren worthington he's one no of i just mean characters. like if i'm yeah. if i'm a fan i'm not oh, like sure, oh my yeah. god he might never come back like i you know <laughs> so i don't think you're gonna get outrage right sure yeah because it's like okay he'll be fine though he's archangel i'm not done with him yet i'll say that yeah. he's from the 60s and he's on that jim lee cover like those yeah. are two of the best things you can be in an x-men comic <laughs> historically unless you're one of those really from the 60s characters but they just didn't <laughs> make the Claremont jump and that's too bad for them. We get a really upsetting bit about how they allegedly scrapped LCD, which is they had to go. brutal for people who are not familiar with the characters of Albert and LCD. LCD is another Android who is like a little girl. Like she looks like a little girl. She has, she's very interview with the vampire where it's like, you seem too old in a way that's like unsettling to me. Yes. She was sort of the more people savvy one of the two of them. And so, yes, if you're going to have him in a bad situation, at the very least, she had to be decommissioned. Yes. And also, you know, she is more of a comedic relief character, no yes. matter which way you cut. She has that disturbing element, like you said, but she's ultimately a little girl with a, a unique speech pattern. She wouldn't really be a, a great fit for the tone of this book, I don't think. No, no, not quite. But who knows? Maybe you'll see parts of her. Oh, my God, Steve. <laughs> so we get an Orcus incident report in a data page and then when we cut back gambit and maggot are protecting carmen it's not going great though until bam 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 we get a bunch of bams as would happen in a heroic x-men rescue except wait shit it's not nightcrawler obviously it's a zazzle who has bamfed in with maddie alex m plate and zero maddie says don't worry child the x-men are here this splash page is really interesting to me because even Maddie looks kind of like a monster here. Like she's standing mm -hmm. in kind of like a velociraptory way that's spooky. I saw a few people be like, she looks weird in this panel. And I'm like, yeah, I think on 
purpose because it's supposed to be really weird that this group of monsters is the X-Men and she's just as threatening and and weird. Like that page with Auntie Emma in New X-Men, the Igor Cordy page. People were like, (laughs) this page is hideous. She looks so bad. I'm like, yes, that's literally the point of the page. Congratulations. It's her relishing the opportunity to try and break up someone's marriage. That's the point of the page. She's supposed to look garish and ghoulish because she's being a bad person on that page. You're not supposed to be reassured when you see this group show up. No, saying, you're Carmen. You're supposed to be like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Even Alex is like hunched over in like a 90s hero guy kind of way. Yeah. In a way that even in the 90s, Alex Summers never did. Right. So like they're all in sort of monster stance, which I think is fun. We get a great little montage of them tearing Orcus to fucking pieces. <laughs> <laughs> M-Plate complains as he's sucking the marrow out of an Orcus guy's head that human marrow is disgusting because good to remind people that he must feed on mutant marrow. That actually, though, is a fun, like my, I'm very into the Sun Qua family and all of their weirdness. <laughs> and he ate his mom, right? Yeah. So I'm always like, what does that mean? And I always thought she could pop out of an egg any minute. He's fed on other things, too. It he just, has. It doesn't sustain him the same way. Right. And Empty that calories. was the first slurp. He did it by yeah. accident. So, yeah. you know, but it's just, a th- I was. It, I just always think, it's very Sarah Gray that way, where I'm like, but what could that mean? <laughs> you know, like, road not taken kind of thing. Um, yeah, because what the St. Croix family me- needs is more More complicated shit. Right. No, exactly. Like, I get that that's not necessarily, but it, I don't know. There's just... You never know. You never know. My favorite thing on this page is Matt, this one panel. It's so a lot of people are going to listen to this episode. She's serving beep uh, in a really intense way. She is walking down and she says, no mercy, my X-Men. And a car with monster teeth chomps down on an orcus guy and says, yum, yum, in a very Inferno 88, 89 kind of way that Dark Web really captured. Maddie did Nightmare Before Christmas before Nightmare Before Christmas, you know? <laughs> like, that really is kind of the, the whole vibe of that event. And I loved getting a little bit of that here. Alex is like, Maddie, oh my God, we talked about this. No unnecessary killing. And here's the thing. I think Orcus people should just die. I'm of the opinion (laughs) that they should. And because I'm not on Twitter, I haven't seen any of the discourse. I do know some people have been like, Alex, why are you saying it's like not cool to kill Nazis? Or I'm like, because guys, there have to be characters in the story who say, I don't agree with that so that we can have the conversation. But also the way I read this is not Alex doesn't want to kill Orcus people and more I don't think my girlfriend, the Goblin Queen, should be encouraged to kill people, right? Like, she's trying to say, we're doing an X-Men thing, less murder, probably. That's how I read that. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of that line, again, you know, we shouldn't have to state every character every in this. Every character is not a, in this. A ringing endorsement of my personal Of my opinion. politics, right. Yeah, no, but I think no, it I makes mean, sense on a lot of levels. Yeah, chop Orcus up. I don't care. I, I would root for Orcus to be eaten by cars. He also pays for it one panel later when I Albert know. slams a claw into his throat. So... But the whole point is Alex, you know, Alex infamously had the whole... Call me Alex. You have to reckon with it. Don't say mutant. Right. Right. 
Hellions, on some level for him, was a journey to, I am a mutant and I love being a mutant. Yeah. Which is something he's never felt before. Because he always hated being a mutant because his power is so dangerous and hurts the people around him. And also, Alex, you know, to flip back to the, the spread of the team, Alex is out of place. Like, he is purposefully out of place. And Maddie is fine consorting with these people, but Alex wouldn't normally be palling around with no. Azazel and Implay. Not even with Gambit, really. Right. And so that is Havoc desperately trying to hang on to the illusion that this is a functional X-Men team. This is an X-Men team. It's fine. We're like being right. heroes. And Maddie's it's just like, Alex I'm making people like... explode, actually. Right. Which is what she then does. I love this moment. So Alex is in a bad way in her arms. Um, I mean, it's a, it's the kind of wound that kills you. Yes. <laughs> so whether or not he's dead, I think we don't know until next issue, but it looks pretty bad is what I'll say. Hard to miss vital organs when you stab someone through the neck with three claws. Yeah. Yeah. She screams, Alex! And I really liked that because finally he gets the Scott! <laughs> Because Gene and Maddie love a Scott. And <laughs> Alex never gets an Alex. Even Lorna, when they were dating, doesn't really toss that many Alexes. Not like that, no. in that font from the Dark Phoenix saga, right? And as she's screaming and her eyes turn red, she spontaneously human combusts all the other Orcus <laughs> soldiers there, which is great. Because here's the thing. No, I'm not Jean Grey. I'm not perfect. Sinister can say he never managed to copy Jean Grey. But what I am is the side of the Phoenix you really don't want to meet in a dark alley. And you're going <laughs> to be really upset that you did. And I love just watching them explode. It's a great, it's just, it, it works for me. I also like, as a, a reader who really came of age in like the early 2000s, I, I like like casual uh, manifestations of powers. Like, Mm -hmm. The whole like Dragon Ball Z, like charging up, yada, yada. Not very cool to me. A character, you know, flicking their wrist and, yeah, and you know, doing oh, something shit. crazy that, you know, as someone who grew up with like Wildstorm and the ultimate line and new X-Men and everything. That's Al's what, been what, doing that really well with Storm in X-Men Red, oh, yeah. where she's just like, I'm sorry, did you not understand who you were talking to? And <laughs> we'll just like very casually do something really scary. Yeah. Jean is always great when she has a moment like that. That's sort of Claremont's two characters who get those yeah. godlike moments, right? And so it's nice to see Maddie get that moment as well here. But in a really upsetting way, she simultaneously telekinetically crumples Albert into a pretzel, which I enjoy, like without even <laughs> looking at him. It's just happening over her shoulder while she cradles Alex and says, you stupid, stupid man. Our grand debut, and you've ruined it. And Alex says, Work. <laughs> Azazel, we've rescued these poor, vulnerable mutants. Take us home. Azazel says, If you insist. So I'm having a lovely time. Personally, he's not German, actually. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't what... think that was German either. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Azazel and Zero don't want to leave. Zero picks up Albert and takes him with him. Gambit says, This an open invite, Red. And she says, Call me that again, and you'll wish I left you for the Sentinels, which I like. <laughs> Wait, we can't leave Warren, but they had to. They really had to get the fuck out of there. Warren also has already been taken to an undisclosed Orcus black site where he is brought in before two characters. 
The woman I don't recognize. Is she a new character? They both are. The guy is not. Okay, because I was so. This guy on the left looks a lot like Dr. Crocodile from Captain Britain. Oh, who I actually do like, but th- that's not. And, yeah. and someone was comparing this panel to when he showed up in the Warren Ellis Astonishing. And I was like, oh. it kind of looks. So that's f- listen. Sometimes characters just kind of look the same, especially in the dark from far <laughs> away. No, they're both new. Yeah. If it was Doc Croc, I was going to scream because you'd be crazy for that. That's crazier than Fantasia. That would be really nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not Dr. Crocodile. These are brand new characters. Okay, cool. Who we learn a lot more about in issue two. He says to the security guy who brings in Warren, I'd leave hastily if I were you. We get awfully excited about new toys, although I believe our guest might have her eye on this one. And the big finale splash page. And the one true goblin queen finally come out and play? Don't like that. It's the Maddie from (laughs) Secret Wars who went full crazy. From Secret Wars and then from X-Men Blue. Mm -hmm. She was last seen being torn down to hell by a legion of alternate universe Maddies because she was the worst one. Yes. Was sort of the vibe. They were all like, this is the one we really can't have running around. (laughs) She's bad for the brand. (laughs) She has with her the Kurt Wagner of that earth who Ilyana had transformed. Ilyana in that reality went full dark child. It was real, real bad. And she had transformed Nightcrawler into a mount from an MMO. Like, you know, like a World of Warcraft, like (laughs) Steed. The Bamf. Who was like a scary demon. Yeah, they called him the Bamf Dragon. So these characters haven't been seen in a while. This was fun. It's an obvious thing to do if you're writing Maddie trying to be a hero to bring in this version who's unambiguously really fucking evil, right? I mean, that's that I was not expecting it, and I laughed out loud when I got to the splash. I was happy we preserved the surprise because nothing really came out about her beforehand. And they're deep. The Bamf Dragon's on the cover to three. Yes. But I still wasn't expecting her to be in the box. I really wasn't. I just thought you were going to like loop in the Bamf Dragon because he's fun <laughs> and Limbo has all kinds of alt reality stuff yeah. going on in it, you know? And she was actually one of the last pieces to fall into place because it was very hard to figure out who could give Madeline a run for her money. There are not that many characters who you can justifiably say are going to go toe-to-toe with Madeline Pryor. And I'm not one for the, you know, trading card power levels, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You still have to acknowledge the fact that she is a clone of Jean Grey. And even if this this is not canon, in my personal opinion, Madeline has not been alive that long to refine her power. So my take is that her abilities that she shares with Jean are probably not as strong as Jean's. She compensates for it with the magic, right? I mean, that's the fun part. Right. But I would say that she's in a comfortable telepathic tier. Oh, yeah. Say like a Conan, where it's like the reason Conan's really scary is because she can kill you 600 different ways. Right. She's not Jean Grey, but her telepathy's pretty fucking good, right? Like, I think that's sort of what I'm saying. I think that area. Or Emma, who has to compensate with the diamond thing, right? Right. Like, you give those characters... Monet is another one whose telepathy is not her strongest power, but she has a whole lot of other powers to make her probably the most powerful person on a given team regardless, right? And even when you get outside of powers, they also have the personality, attitude, edge, cleverness. And that's, so it was difficult to come up with who is going to go toe to toe with Madeline Pryor. Even if it's not original flavor gene, right? power wise, 
she's still pretty strong, especially with the might of Limbo behind her. So who's the threat that makes sense to throw against her? A version of her that is even more powerful is an obvious, so obvious that I can't believe it didn't occur to me. And she, you know, this is a character, I'm talking about regular Maddie. This is a character who has, you know, fought the X-Men to a standstill multiple times. So Mm -hmm. it had to be someone good. And I I don't want to mention who it almost was because then fans will speculate about what the story could have been. But I was very, very happy when I realized and I was writing issue one. I was building up to this and someone else had been in with a different character in mind. And I called Jordan and was like, no, it's, it has to be. It's not quite working. It's not working. It's got to be this crazy deep cut. And he had to be sold on it because, you know, X-Men Blue is a weird thing to reference right now. I loved the book. It's got a ton of fun stuff. This character has not been mentioned in the Krakoan Age. And part yes. of the Krakoa thing is that while it can reference older continuity, usually the plots are self-contained within the Krakoa era. Yeah. So it's a bit of a curveball. But the thing is, Maddie's a bit of a curveball to begin with. She is well-known now and she was always the goblin queen's always been like kind of iconic with trading cards and stuff but she was a deep cut bit of x-men lore who has now become a pretty a-list character yeah in a rapid way which i'm thrilled about but once you're treading in that like someone who wants to read a madeline Pryor book is gonna allow you to pull them along a little for the ride with continuity deep cuts is my guess that was the other that was what really how I was able to convince him and you'll see the the first page of issue two is basically like the, explaining the it all, I would imagine the all-star yeah. <laughs> Superman version of her origin yeah here are the bullet points because I, I feel really strongly about like I know I picked weird characters but if you read these five issues you're going to know anything you need to know like you don't need to know mm-hmm. the complex history of implate to understand what he's doing here you don't need to have ever read a, a comic book with this version of Maddie or the Banff dragon to understand what's happened here. All you need to know, perverse demonic versions. Boom, you got it. Like you can go from there. Issue two is going to tell you the rest and, and you can run with it. From there. It's exactly the right level of deep cut where fans who have read that story went, oh my God, that's so funny. And other people will go, okay, they have another <laughs> Maddie and she's evil and we'll get more next yeah. issue. And you know, I'm like, you've already bought into the notion that Madeline herself is a clone. So the idea, oh, there's another one. Like that's not that far-fetched even for someone who never read yes. that initial story. We then get to the backup. <laughs> How did this come about? Yeah, this actually came about a little later in the process. I think I wrote this maybe after issue two and definitely after the Pride issue, the Pride issue short. The one with gimmick, right? The one with gimmick, yeah, with Carmen Cruz. We wanted to make a big splash with the first issue and we realized it's a very grim first issue and it spins heavily out of dark web. So if a reader maybe didn't read that, it's like useful connective tissue to kind of explain what is the limbo embassy? What is this crazy status quo? Because as you said, you know, Maddie feels like a mainstay now, but for many years she wasn't. She was super dead for a yeah. long time. She would pop up to cause problems occasionally, yeah. but she was mostly super dead. And, then and half, half the, the time... time she popped up, it was a different character who wasn't her and it's really go to the 18 and a half hour (laughs) or actually you could just listen to nate gray i get into it in the nate gray episode but But, yeah yeah. no she's she's complicated so it's good to provide more context 
so we had these 10 pages and I I've done the more comedic work in other places. And I, you know, it's not full comedy, but I thought after the, it's funnier and it's a nice relief a yes. little bit. It's also, if Alex is not going to play a significant, uh, a live person role in the next four issues, <laughs> which I don't know whether or not that's the case, but at the very least, if he's alive, he's not talking for a while, probably. <laughs> so I think it was nice for us to get a little bit of a window into his state of mind because the book is much more from her yeah, perspective. It kind of became like a, a his and hers issue. <laughs> yeah, which is fun, right? So we get him and She-Hulk talking first because She-Hulk helped them get all the treaties set up for the Limbo Embassy. She is a little annoyed, though, because Maddie hasn't been showing up to court, which I think is really funny. <laughs> Not like she has a social security card. You know? No, exactly. She's like, I was made in a lab in Nebraska. Like, what do you, I'm not in the system. They're going to start asking me to pay taxes. <laughs> anyway, she shows up and drops a demon arm because she's been having demon uprising crushing to do alex summers is a man in search of purpose and we get like a whole week it says up top this is one week after the founding so this is like right after dark right web. so after dark web well before the gala but we're getting a week in the life yes. basically of alex summers and a week in the life of the embassy Azazel greets him as the queen's concubinus, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> I, was, I was surprised they didn't make us cut that, but I guess it's archaic enough. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, he's a guy. You can yeah. call a guy a concubine. It's funny because it's not typical, right? <laughs> so it, they had a different word for that, if you're wondering. So anyway... Azazel is annoyed because he can't get into hell dimensions. This is an amazing X-Men plot, as I recall, yeah. from the Jason Aaron amazing X-Men. Because he has been banned from most hells, he's shown up here because Limbo is under new management to be like, hey, can I hang out with you guys? <laughs> Which is funny. And he's brought M-Plate with him, who goes, <laughs> Maddie walks right in. She says something I think is interesting. I'm inclined to be sympathetic to Krakoa's unfavored first and last of the Neofem. Because clearly she's just like, we clean that shit up. <laughs> like, <laughs> those characters from the Draco are not coming back. No, FYI. very low odds. <laughs> <laughs> But it's also a nice flex of Maddie's growing knowledge of the occult, because in the classic story, she's a warlock in D&D &D terms, not a <laughs> wizard, right? Like she makes a pact with a demon, it gives her certain powers. Since the New Mutants arc that Vita did, she did some training with Ilyana in more formal magic and then she got access to the limbo library that Ilyana and then amanda sefton curated so nicely during their respective tenures as queen of limbo so it's nice to see that she's keeping up with her remedial mystical studies because <laughs> i think that that well i think that it's it, here's the thing i would like to see maddie hang around for a long time as like a real character and i think the best way to do that in a world where gene gray is gene gray is for them to have different niches going yeah. on and so i think that it's nice to see that part of her character expanding it also gives her a lot of fun crossover opportunity with characters over on that end like dr strange yeah. or wanda or whoever else which i like so Azazel says that the Sankwa family has incurred a great debt 
to him that he intends to collect on. And it's been many years. And M-Plate is like, no, actually, absolutely not. Azazel says not to worry about M-Plate's appetites because I let him nibble. I was surprised you got away with that. I mean, I I didn't write it to sound gay. When you read it back, it sounds But it does gay. when I say it that way. But I know that you mean literally he's drinking my bone marrow. Yeah, but he's just drinking bone marrow. <laughs> but here's the thing. I grew up on Chris Claremont X-Men. If I'm going to read a potentially homoerotic sexual innuendo into a scene, I'm just going to because it's how I learned it from watching Chris. You know what I yes. mean? Like, I can't, yes. I can't help myself. And that's an old plot point, too. That's from... Weapon X, where Azazel tells Monet <sighs> that her family. My fucking God. Yeah. yeah. Azazel is in the Greg Pak Weapon X. Yeah. And he tells Monet that her family made. No, a deal. I read this for the Monet episode, mm-hmm. but it was literally like two years ago. Yeah. And I forgot all about it because this that was my my lucky in because I really wanted to use Implay. I wasn't coming up with a good way to get him into the book. And when I went back to read Azazel's last appearances, I saw that random plot thread that, you know, doesn't pay off there because the book ends like a page, you know, two pages later. And I was like, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no, Implate there you go. That's good. That's the thing. Implate, like, which I like. Yeah. Implate he's been sort of dragged along. This. Like, and M-Plate usually only goes where M-Plate wants to go. Yes. Like M-Plate is usually insisting upon his own presence. So it's fun to see him be the one dragged along like a penance for a change, right? Yeah. There's something kind of poetic about that. Wednesday, we get the petitions for Sanctuary away from Krakoa from mutants who just don't like Krakoa's vibe and want <laughs> to hang out somewhere else, but somewhere else that's safe. Yeah which I think is an important aspect to what Maddie's doing here, which is like, you don't have to want to live on Krakoa, but you should still be able to have a mutant space that's safe for you to go to, even if you don't want to be part of the Krakoan scene. Yeah, because I, I love Krakoa, and we've told lots of stories. Like, if I were a mutant in this universe, I'd be, you know, on the next ticket to the nearest gate. Same. I'd be all about Krakoa, but it's important that you allow mutants to continue to exist in diaspora if they want to. Yeah, and especially for mutants who have had brushes with human law, mm-hmm. if they're saying no to Krakoa, that leaves them in a, a wonky legal A dangerous space. position, yeah. right. And so it's not, it's important for them to have somewhere to go. Yeah. Zero is upset that the Quiet Council hasn't let him do enough Zimitsi flash crafting and... <laughs> is hoping that Limbo will be more into it. Fatal has a great bit. Long time no see, Alex. Always knew you had a dark side because her only really big story is that era where she is Havoc's Girl Friday when Havoc mm-hmm. turns evil and joins Dark Beast's Brotherhood. Later, it's revealed that he was undercover, but I don't think that was the initial plan. It's a very confusing era of X-Factor, but it's fun to remind us that they have a connection that could be explored at some point. Then we get a great piece of just, it says the Fenris twins, and it's just Maddie from offstage saying no. (laughs) I I, I mean, it could be Alex, but I assumed it was Madeline just being like, absolutely not. I I wrote it as Alex, but it's also funny to imagine Maddie being I love the idea of it being Alex, too. (laughs) Whoever it is, just like, absolutely not. Yeah, we have our limits here. 
It's also a nice bit of continuity because they're in the outfits here that they were in at the end of X Corp and then are in in Bishop War College. Mm-hmm. But now they're in new outfits in Uncanny Avengers. And then speaking of identical outfits, in the next panel, we get Mastermind and Lady Mastermind. But Mastermind, the girl version. It's the ladies mastermind, beloved of this podcast. And uh, I just want to say thanks, Steve. This was a treat. And I will say, I will say on air officially, they only made it in for you. (laughs) The first time I wrote this spread, I did not think to include them. It was just going to be villains you saw in the initial spread. And then I was like, you know what? This is my one spot to shout This is the one moment. So there you go. Oh, we don't want to move here. Krakoa is a blast. We just have brunch plans with Mads. She around? (laughs) It's so good. I love it. The next panel is Infaxia, who has not been seen in the Krakoa area yet. And I'm so thrilled to see that she's alive. I don't think she's been seen in like 30 years or more. Well, since she died of the legacy virus in the 90s. Yeah. But here's the thing. She's a little bit of a problem character. So she wouldn't have been at the top of my PR list of like (laughs) resurrections we got to do on Krakoa. Right. So there was always a fear that she might be pretty far down the protocol queue. And I'm glad to see that she's back. Infaxia, for people who aren't aware... She uh, she turns men into zombie servants by making out with them. She's a Louise Simonson character. She's <laughs> a lot of fun. And she needs sanctuary because, please do not tell the X-Men, but I might have turned a few dozen humans into antibodies again. She's probably best known to Cerebro listeners from the Threnody episode because the issue where she dies is the big Beast Gives Threnody to Sinister issue she's a fun character good to see her back we then get fantasia who says my motivations are my own I laughed out loud. she's a weirdo <laughs> like, she's weird. weird i love her she's a, eileen Harsaw. A, a very qualified phd who wears a weird wig and floats around yes <laughs> like, she's literally and she's hot too because yeah. we have that one issue where she's just a blonde in a bikini and you're like who's that and then you see her reading a book called astrophysics and you go oh my god it's fantasia she's hot under that schmada <laughs> and fright wig that she chooses to wear for reasons unclear my boyfriend asked about her because he so i i avoid social media reactions to anything i do but he was doing like a deep dive he was very curious and he was like everyone is talking about this character fantasia like who is she that's so and funny. i was like well no one <laughs> But <laughs> no one. One of her most significant stories is a Hardy's tie-in comic that you can no longer read. And I told him, I was like, you know, one of her biggest moments is that Exodus comes to recruit her for the Acolytes. And you think, oh, maybe she's going to. Oh, well, she said no. So And she decides to hang out with her gay friends instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I had that little Hardy's toy that looks like she has no arms. Yeah, the time gliders. Yeah. yeah. Well, she doesn't have arms because she hides them under her spooky clothes. I know, but I'm pretty sure they like legitimately thought she. No, had they're no there. Arms. Like, yeah. well, when she's in the bikini, we see the oh, arms. I know she's got them. But... Much like the realization that the white hair is just a wig that she's wearing for kicks. Yeah, she's a very funny character to me, and I'm just delighted to see her. Anyway, I'm happy to be two out of two of her 21st century appearances. Yes, and uh, <laughs> her motivations are indeed her own. We get a moment with Solar. Then we get the second panel of because it's this is a two-page spread. Yeah, guys, I wondered why thing. you were reading so, it down. Because I'm because I'm because I'm because yeah because <laughs> now I'm well. Do you know why? 
I have a review, review copy that I got and it's a PDF and it's not done as the spread yes. properly in this PDF. <laughs> to me, that's not what these pages look like. So that makes more sense than the uh, than the earlier thought. Right. So anyway, <laughs> Animax, her beast new challengers. Todd from Secaucus, who is a new character. I hate school and my parents don't like get me at all. Alex gives him the number for a therapist instead. The last name on the list is Kangaroo, who Alex is confused to see because Kangaroo is a Spider-Man villain, which is a nice segue into Maddie going down to talk to Ben Riley. This is a fun bit that I forgot until I was rereading it to talk to you for this was in the backup because it feels like something that could have been in the music. It takes place a while ago, yeah. obviously, but like it does feel more tonally of a piece with that original thing. Ben points out that Maddie got what they set out to get. She got to be a real girl. She got the memories. She got more than what she asked for. And he got nothing. And that's true. Yeah. I mean, there's no two ways around it. I, I Ben wanted the same thing Maddie wanted. And she got it. And he did it. Yeah. And that's going to pay off beyond beyond me. Um, you know, obviously. Zeb, I would imagine in Spider-Man yeah, stuff. Zeb, yeah, Zeb has plans. But I, I think that, you know, as, as much as Maddie, I love Dark Web for Maddie. I think Ben's got a valid complaint here. Oh, listen, Dark Web is the vindication of Maddie. It's Ben's fall. Yeah. Ben has a long journey still to go on. She did it in 1988 and we've been trying to get her back. I mean, hopefully for him, it won't take him that long. I don't <laughs> think it will, but you get what I mean, you know? That's when we get the tee up for the Voices Pride issue story that is a prologue to Dark X-Men where Carmen Cruz comes to the Limbo Embassy. Spectre and Gray Malkin are also there. Spectre, a character who I don't believe ever spoke. Like, I think he was just in that yearbook. He does actually, he has a line about not being able to feel his shadow anymore after M-Day. Right after M Day, yeah, because yeah. he's depowered. But you, we had never seen him use his power before, right? Because he only existed in the yearbook yeah. until he was <laughs> depowered. Which is like uh, he, the thing about the decimation is, I am vehemently opposed to it from a narrative and and whatever else perspective. But there were a lot of kids at that school, yes. and I do get the notion <laughs> that like about sixty of these gotta go because we can't keep we can't serve them all as characters. The cast is too big, you know. So that that element of it did always kind of make sense to me. Yeah, I don't want to single them out, but I'd seen a tweet, and it was something to the effect of like, I can't believe we haven't seen obscure Academy X character one or obscure Academy X character two. They should be doing X Y Z, and I was like. You can't believe? Even I had to double check who they were. So maybe we can believe we haven't seen it. <laughs> it's tough for that class. There's just way too many of them. Yeah. And as the sliding time scale dilates, you now also have to serve the much more popular cast of New Mutants and Generation X and X-Force from the 90s, X-Force. That cohort, they're like 25, like forever, which means like ranging. Yeah. Like I think Karma's probably about 30, but age isn't real in comics. We have to not do that. But I'm just saying like they're in their mid-20s. Ilyana makes a joke about renting a car, right? Yes. So they're in their mid-20s vaguely, like Kitty. It leaves those characters in a tough spot because they can't really grow up. 
except very, very slowly. Yes. <laughs> but it was nice to see them. And it was nice to see him and Gray Malkin as a couple. I have made lots of jokes about Gray Malkin because I find that character kind of insane. But <laughs> it's nice to see him have a boyfriend. And it's cute because he is empowered in darkness. Yes. And Spectre can make the darkness. So they're a little mutant circuit. And it's very cute to me. So that was smart. Look Thank at you, you always thinking. It's like when you made Grizzly gay by accident. Well, like not by accident, <laughs> but like non-canonical but then people started including him in pride art and that character has not appeared because why would he but if he ever does i bet he's just gay now because it's on the marvel wiki i think there's a decent chance there's a joke it's... in x-men 92 <laughs> guys where where grizzly's on rogue's boat of gays and it was just a bear joke but you know wiki drift it's real it's real part of the reason tempo is a queer character now is because she was briefly referenced to be one in age of x well, but that was the well, real was, but character. It, sure, but yeah, but it was like they'd been put in as yeah. reality warp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Well, she also was then dead from then until Krakoa. So <laughs> yes. there was not really any time to establish anything else. Yes, but you never know. But I put Mike Carey on the spot about that on uh, on my show when he came on for the Frenzy episode. He's such a sweetie. But I was just like, the implication here is supposed to be that Tempo and Farrell were dating, right? And he's like, absolutely. I was like, okay, <laughs> just just because it's it's very much an of that moment comic yes. where they can't, it doesn't quite say it, but it's like if you're not an idiot. But <laughs> you know, anyway, just good to have it on record. We then cut to a very funny moment where Alex and Maddie host like Summer's family dinner at the embassy, and Scott and Jean are there. Which the idea like that I would read a whole bottle episode <laughs> issue. It would be very the Jan's dinner party episode of The Office. I feel like where it's just like this is the worst dinner party I've ever been to, but not in a like they hate each other way. Just in a like this is really strange. Yes. We then get a bit about how Maddie is thriving, ruling Limbo. She's shaking Sim's hand over a table with Belasco propping it up as their footstool, basically. This draws on the dark web Mary Jane and Black Cat story with Sim and Belasco. It also calls back to Maddie's long, complicated relationship with Sim. Sim is a very loaded character, <laughs> but the thing about Sim is he does have a lot of sway in limbo. So yes. it's been the case every time. Ilyana, who has the most reason to hate Sim, has always had to be willing to make a deal with the devil on occasion because Belasco, worse, significantly worse, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's a pick your poison kind of situation. Amanda Sefton was just minding her own business in that miniseries you can't read because it's not collected in trade anywhere. Please, I am begging you, Marvel, if you're listening. <laughs> it could go in an Excalibur Volume 4 Omni. Like, it would be so easy to just do that, right? They didn't put it in the Black Sun Omnibus, which is oh, actually where it sense. should be. Yeah. Because that's where Chris introduces Amanda as the new magic. But, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, tune in, like, next month for the Amanda Sefton episode of Cerebro so you can finally understand why I love this character who no one else has ever thought about. <laughs> and it'll be great. And you'll have a great time. Alex says that he's happy and we get a great little hot spring moment that's again sort of a reflection of the gene scenes that have happened on Krakoa in this idyllic paradise right so it's like the scene of Gene and Wolverine together in X-Force early in the Percy run but here it's like Maddie splashing down covered in like demon viscera 
<laughs> like Alex being like, ah, but this is a moment again to call back to like, he's not upset that she's killing Orcus people. It's specifically, he doesn't want her to be killing because he's trying to convince everyone. She's a good guy. Now you don't have to worry about her. And historically when Jean Grey or her genetic sister start killing, it escalates quickly, right? So it's just, he's keeping tabs. He's being a, a responsible boyfriend, just making sure she doesn't kill too often. And the <laughs> thing is, she's going to do it whether he wants her to or not. So he's just expressing her. It's like when you say to somebody, hey, buddy, I know you're fine, but you don't need another drink tonight, right? <laughs> like, you don't need it right now. You don't need just, like, put it another down. disemboweling tonight, like. Yeah, like, I'm not saying you have a problem. I'm just saying you've done enough today. You can stop now. There's a really cute moment here where Maddie says, well, first she shushes him, which is <laughs> funny, because I just like when she doms him. But here's the thing. These two pages, I was like a little conflicted because I am one of those really crazy people who truly believes in this relationship. Like, I think they should be together. I think they are meant to be together. And I am a huge Lorna fan. Yeah. I think Lorna thinks they should be together. Like, I don't <laughs> think Lorna wants to go back there. You get what I'm saying? Yes. Nor should she. That relationship was extremely bad for both of them. Always. Like, every <laughs> single time. They would get possessed. They would... It was like it was never the war of kings was the best time they ever had as a couple that's dire that's really <laughs> dire so you know you know for both their sakes i think lorna should move on and alex should really be with i i believe in these two crazy kids and so i don't want I don't want it. To, I don't. I don't want to think that she doesn't love him just as much as he loves her because I think she does. I think she's just kind of a crazy person and isn't great at expressing it, which I relate to on a personal level. So I, yeah. I appreciate that about them. My take is that these are two very complicated, flawed people. You know, flawed in the sense of how they express their emotions or how they may approach certain things. I think they really do love each other, but I think the way that. Madeline Pryor is going to love someone is not yeah it's happy, complicated easy and the way her that... love language is acts of service right. let's say right but I think they really do love each other and you see that in the first in the first part of the issue where Alex is stabbed through the neck and you know Maddie has a very vulnerable reaction for her she's not yes composed and cold in that moment she's literally on fire <laughs> so you know, they they do love each other that doesn't mean their relationship is healthy or normal i love them and i just hope he's alive because i mean like again i'm not super worried it's fall of x guys it's going to be bad <laughs> these are beloved characters i'm not enormously worried about will there be havoc comics 10 years from now i'm just not super worried about that but i hope he's still alive within this story because i really like how you wrote them together and i'd like to see more of it so hopefully we get a little more of it i do understand it's a five issue miniseries and i do pity the Orcus person who runs afoul of Madeline Pryor if that man is dead. Because it's not going to be fun for them. It really is not. It's going to be less fun than it already would have been. And you were already getting eaten by a car, yeah. right? So, like, it's about to get, like, it's got to get a little bit the Punisher style on some of these guys, I think. In the same way that Conan and Monet are doing that in Uncanny Avengers. And my favorite part of that issue is when they've just killed a whole bunch of people and they look at Steve Rogers, who's like, so, and they're like, are you going to give us a problem right now? And he's just like, absolutely not. <laughs> Even Captain America is like, honestly, 
No, you ladies have a good time. Let's try to be a little more productive than this, maybe. But like, are we about to have an argument about what just happened? (laughs) No, we are not. We're absolutely not about to have an argument about that. Steve gets it. Go off, Queens. (laughs) Like, very that. That's a lot of fun. God, that book's that. I, this, all of the thing is, I'm just having so much fun with all this stuff that I don't even have time to like stop and be upset because it's all so exhilarating. And also just because I trust the ride. I think yeah. it's going to be a good time. I think this was like a kick in the pants for all of us. We got really excited about what we could do with this premise and, you know, the kind of paces we could put these characters through. So I'm, I'm glad that seems to be communicated to the readership who are, you know, getting like, yes, things got dire and look at what, you know, look how we're responding. Mm-hmm. The note that it ends on with Alex just looking at her slaughtering demons with her big scythe with a dopey grin on his face. Alex Summers is a man in search of purpose and God help him, Madeline Pryor knows it. And that's when I was like, you better not get cynical with my babies, <laughs> Steve. I think that- It's know, good for them. You can love someone and still be- kind of bad oh, for them <laughs> like, abs- well yes. yes and they're not i'm not they're not neither of them is a saint yes. obviously i just think i i just do think i think that i think i think the future is a beautiful thing for these crazy kids if the world will let them i think they, they might just make it <laughs> i think they might just make it i really do i really do in the same way that i'm like look scott and gene are gonna have problems because it's an ongoing comic and if they were just happily married always all the time that would get boring really fast and that's not to suggest that in real life there can't be very interesting people who are happily married or that you can't have a story where people are happily married. I just mean when they have a fight, I think those kids are going to figure it out in the (laughs) end. Sometimes she has to come back from the dead, but like, I think they will. I feel that these two, they have that. I I just always feel like they're always going to reorbit back into each other. And that's why if I'm Lorna, I'm like, I need a new love interest ASAP. Yeah. I mean, And I love this for you. I love it. I never have to go to the summer's dinner again. (laughs) And I'm I'm busy, to be perfectly honest. Like, Gene and I will still meet for coffee, but, like, I'm not... I don't need to be at Sunday dinner at the summer house. I just don't. Lorna has never felt healthier or, like, more on her path than after getting out of that Than after getting out of that relationship? (laughs) And moving on with her life. And that's not an insult to Havoc. It's just, you know... Sometimes you need a break. Sometimes your high school boyfriend also is not who you're supposed to be yes. with long term. Sometimes they're just not actually compatible. I very much think that Madeline loves Alex. I know that Alex loves Madeline. So, that, mm-hmm. you know, that is how I am writing them. And it, it may not be the healthiest relationship dynamic, but it is a, a true one. And it feels like a return also to the friendship that they had in the 80s material, which is the thing that's really sweet about, like the reason Inferno is so tragic on some level is because if she had just been able to let it go, they were happy, you know? Like, but she, when she saw Jean had taken Scott in her view, she was like, it's on now. You'll see a bit of a nod to that in the next issue. She didn't even want Scott anymore, but she was so pissed that Jean had taken him. You know, it was like, Really? Really? The pillars of of Madeline for me in this book are the recent work with her and then also the Outback era. Outback era. Even before she becomes Madeline Pryor. No, when she's a member of the X-Men. Yeah. When she's their girl Friday in the monitor room. That core of her character is the other pole of Madeline Pryor for me is, you know, Dark Web and Maddie 
in the green jumpsuit is kind of like who makes up the character to me that's kind of what you're saying listen i sell maddie in a flight suit t-shirts <laughs> cerebro merch so i i get it but there's a reason legally, <laughs> legally it's not I don't legally distinct flight suit character. Legally um, distinct flight suit character. But there's a reason Alaska is evoked on the very first page of the comic. Mm-hmm. We go from hell to Alaska. Like those are the poles of Madeline Pryor to me. Well, and she has a history also of going to Alaska on the astral plane for comfort in moments like that. Like she takes cable there a couple times in 90s cable when she's a psy ghost after she's been devoured by the Red <laughs> Queen. Don't don't worry about it right now. Oh, I was just thinking about like how tragic it, the the number of days Madeline Pryor has been alive it, is tiny. Right. Like this is right. very it's tragic. Like she is three years right. total. That's not how it feels to her, but it is. She has lived, actually lived such a little amount of time. Well, I mean, I guess she had a year with the airline before she met Scott because Sinister is really thorough. So <laughs> there's like, so there's that. And then there's the year that she's pregnant and gives birth. And then there's roughly like a year in the outback up to Inferno. That's three years. Yeah. At the longest, she's been alive like five years ever. <laughs> like, and that's right. That's like tragic. add it up. Yeah. Add it up. Yeah. Across multiple manifestations. And I think that's very tragic. And and that's why, to me, Alaska is the other pole, because that is one of the only times she's gotten to live a life of her own outside of now. The only memories she has that aren't genes, yeah. really, you know, or the ones she has very vague. When I did 18 and a half hours, we really dug into <laughs> every time Madeline talks about her past or her childhood because she does, but it's always very vague. It's like, oh, I was flying planes before I could drive or things like that. But she doesn't ever talk about a family like there's things that she's just doesn't have and that clearly her mind would just like skip over if yeah. it didn't make sense. And that's really sad. And so seeing her get that finally right before the fall of X hits is brutal and it's high time that she had a book like this where she's the hero i mean you know an anti-hero <laughs> for sure but so is venom like we love an anti-hero yeah. in a in a good marvel comic a right half the so, line are anti-heroes wolverine i mean right yeah, yeah exactly so i think that it's exciting and i hope that it's the signal of a new era as an ip for this character because i really do love her and i love how you're writing her here so i hope Thank you get you. to write more stuff with her after this mini i would love to you know no plans at the moment but i would love to and i'm really well if you're listening go out and <laughs> buy it in physical because it helps yeah and we sold out at the distributor level for number one so there's a second printing of number one coming up mazel tov Thank it's only you. been what four days we, so that's we sold out cool. on the first day actually which first day really awesome but yeah no i mean i i love this cast of misfits and freaks and it's kind of the bittersweet thing is like I feel like I could have written these guys for like 25 issues easily. I would have read all 25 of them. Yeah. yeah. I'm also really excited with what we got to do in five. And I can't say enough good about working with Jonah Scharf. Uh, he is really just like the godsend of this book or the devil send or what have you. <laughs> you know, there's really no one more perfect for blending the horror aspects with the, the classic X-Men physique and action 
and also Nelson Daniel on the backup, he really was perfect for the the slightly more humorous tone and Frank Martin on colors throughout all of it. So I got very, very lucky with art. Using the same colorist makes it really seamless. Like you can tell it's a different artist penciling, but it doesn't feel jarring because the color consistency is really good. Yeah. And it's also cool to see Frank tackle such different styles because Jonas and Nelson yeah. are not similar. Couldn't artists. be more different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm just really grateful for the whole art team on this. And it's been such a joy to do this book. I hope people enjoy the whole wild ride we have ahead of you you know not everyone on this first cover survives and those that do are definitely changed by the end so we've got a lot of a lot of gruesome surprises left in store well steve thank you so much for being my guest for coming on to talk about this issue i don't think it's outrageous to tell the people that at some point in the near future you'll probably be back on the show but by the near future i mean like the next year on like the real show the yes. show show and that's going to be fun and people should look forward to that or they should go back and listen to our North Star episode if you haven't already. I think it's a lot of fun and it is a nice little window into Steve's mind now <laughs> that Steve is someone who is writing some of these great characters and is like anyone with a self-care impulse trying to avoid social media <laughs> so it's a great way to get access without you know that that's my limbo or that's my alaska and now i'm in hell yeah, yeah. right no exactly like talking <laughs> here we're going to address it we're going to talk thank you so much for being my guest is there anything else you'd like to plug or would you like to tell people how to follow your work or whatever oh the uh, so i am trying to avoid social media as much I, i'm still on twitter at steve underscore fox f-o-x-e um, I also keep my website, stevefox.com, uh, very updated. So yeah, the, the, you know, pick up Dark X-Men, check out X-Men Unlimited uh, that Steph and I co-wrote. And also, I would love for folks to pre-order Spider-Woman. Uh, it launches in November. It's my first series outside of the X-Men office. Uh, Jessica Drew is, of course, a longtime sort of ex-cousin, thanks to Chris Claremont. Uh, you know, she did her time in the books. Mm -hmm. So I would love for folks to to pick that up and see what we're going to do over there. Uh, Corolla Broly and I. I have to say that when I was looking at this list, <laughs> I was like, Julia Carpenter, you're writing all my favorite redheads. Yeah, she's going to be in it. You're on I'm a really... quest. Well, you treat her well, because when I get to write Madam Web one of two, <laughs> the world will be in love with her so just give me the runway you yes, know yes but especially when you consider that web weaver is a redhead i really have just had like it's true you're kind of just having a ginge of, fest yeah it's julia is more of like a strawberry blonde but when it's done properly in the comic it's definitely red it's yeah. like dazzler very excited Thank you again for joining me. It's always a treat to see you. Steve was going to be my guest at FlameCon for the live show, but had a conflict. Thank you to Josh Crignon and Josh Trujillo for stepping in on that. We had a great time. Unfortunately, my technical setup 1000% did not work. So none of you are going to get to hear it unless you were there at the show. I'm oh, so no. sorry, but listen, it happens. It happens. Like I really tried to salvage the audio and besties it's rough it's like the amanda sefton miniseries you really just gotta yeah kind of had dig. to be there yeah. yeah but unlike the amanda sefton miniseries which could be on marvel unlimited in seconds if marvel <laughs> just would hear my plea this one i really can't salvage unfortunately so you know what are you gonna do I'm like, it's an Abnett and Lanning X-Men miniseries called magic <laughs> put it in the trade they'll think it's Ilyana and they'll buy it <laughs> anyway i digress Thanks again, Steve, for joining me. 
You can follow Cerebro on Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can follow the Cerebro Animatics by Krakoa Welcomes via Cerebrocast on TikTok and YouTube. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, you can get exclusive access to the Secret Files, bonus episodes, including the Cerebro Appendix, more interviews like this one, and much, much more. The Claremont read-along is resuming this month, which I'm excited about. I'm getting a bunch in the can because I want to have a more consistent release schedule, so I'm not starting it until I have like a bunch <laughs> saved up so it's a whole process but i promise it's coming because i really do want to have a weekly offering on that but the big thing is it helps me continue to do the show so if you love what i do please do sign up for the patreon it's just five bucks a month and mama's gotta eat so uh <laughs> that's my spiel i do this because of all of you and it was so wonderful to meet so many of you last weekend at FlameCon. it's always insane to me to realize that there are real human beings out there who listen to this show <laughs> and when i get to meet you guys it's crazy so uh thank you to everyone who came out and uh i, I hope to see more of you soon thank you as always for your support and until next time everybody bye bye x-men x-men in the 21st century people mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is 